0: There's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girls' night, we have to get our fix. And that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or a dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's Kelly'sKillerPopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoke Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium, handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Psst, guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mmm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out SmokedBros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, Roger and Quentin pull off one last job in the last run. On our very first bootleg tape of the show, Video Archives favorite George C. Scott returns to the screen. A former mob getaway driver has retired to the peaceful Portuguese coastline, but there's a growing feeling in him that he just can't shake. He has to know if he still has it in him, and to figure that out, he takes one last job. Quentin and Roger unravel the mystery of the double-billed directors, pick apart the history of the making of the movie, and talk about what makes this heist film work. Next up, Yeehaw! The Wild West goes wacko in Rustler's Rhapsody. Rex O'Harelihan, played by Tom Berenger, is a fast-drawn, silver-spurred, guitar-playing, singing cowboy who breaks the fourth wall and becomes aware that every town he rides into is the same as the last. An ode to Kitty matinees, Quentin shares vivid stories of the genre from theaters long shuttered. The duo discuss the gorgeous way this movie is shot, the affectionate parody this film brings, and the dilemma with faith of self. And lastly, the oddest film we've covered on the podcast yet, The Jet Benny Show. Shot on Super 8, there's just no way to describe this Jack Benny impersonation and Star Wars spoof rolled into one. So I'm going to let the guys take it from here. My name is Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery.
1: Okay, thank you, Gala, and welcome to the Video Archives Podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Tarantino, along with... Roger Avery. And tonight's first movie is Richard Flesher's from 1971, The Last Run, Starring one of our returning champions, along with uh, Jack Palance and Rod Steiger, uh, one of our favorite leading men here at the Video Archives podcast, George C.
0: Scott. George C. Scott stars in The Last Run, which, along with co-hit Wrestler's Rhapsody, will be playing on jaw-dropping 35mm film for two nights on Tuesday, March 21st and Wednesday, March 22nd. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For more information, visit thenewbev.com. The New Beverly Cinema, always on film.
1: It's actually written by one of my favorite screenwriters, a Scottish writer named Alan Sharp. Now, he's mostly known for the Westerns that he wrote. He wrote... uh, Ozana's Ray, right, which is actually my very favorite Western of the 70s. He wrote uh, the Peter Fonda Western, which is also very terrific, The Hired Hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote the movie with uh, Gregory Peck, Billy Two Hats, which is actually kind of a mediocre movie, but you can tell how great the script is.
2: I always thought of him as the guy who brought me Damnation Alley.
1: Yes, of course he did Damnation Alley. Yes, absolutely he did Damnation Alley. Yeah.
2: The thing about Damnation Alley, and I mean, one, that was like, for me, an, the ultimate Roger movie. Mm-hmm. It would be great to cover that movie at some yeah. point. But they used to have that Damnation Alley oh, yeah, truck the, the, the truck. on Coenga there.
1: Oh, I mean, I mean, for like 15 years. Yeah, forever. It, it was well, no, there. Well, no, it, the, the, it felt
2: like it was there forever. No, it
1: well, it was- It was one, some like movie uh, yeah, rental car, it, re- vehicle rental It place. absolutely was. I mean, back when we were making movies in the 80s, yeah, if we were trying to finance them Other than a minimum wage job, which we were always financing our movies via our minimum wage job, which as Chris Rock says, they would pay you less, except it's against the law. (laughs) If we had any kind of like mad money that we could have spent, we could have easily rented the Damnation Alley truck, drove out to Angela Crest Mountains. Yeah, and, and made like, a little movie. And made some fucking dystopian future fucking movie, all right? But that's what Fred Allen Ray would do. Yeah. You know, he would like, you know, he, he literally, he would, oh, I'll, we'll go out and, uh, you know, we'll basically do a rip off of Beast from the Haunted Cave and I'll go out and I'll rent the Damnation Alley truck <laughs> for the weekend. <laughs> and away we go, you know? <laughs> I wish we had done that. Yeah, for a period of time there in the 70s, Alan Sharp was a very, very successful screenwriter, you know, able to get uh, uh, four different screenplays not only like made but without anybody else monkeying with them and uh, getting another writer on it. and that that was a that was a, that was a big deal that was a big deal especially back then to be as idiosyncratic a writer as he was and to have like four movies made from his from his I'm not um, that's not even to mention a movie actually I don't like but everyone was else it seems night to moves? love night Moves. I yeah. don't like night Moves. I think it's really boring but every, everyone else seems to love it I
2: I'm kind of with you on, on I tried you tried
1: to watch it this it's year It's no damnation alley I even tried to watch it this year and I couldn't get through it actually right. <laughs> Okay, so now this box is interesting. Okay, so this is not from the Video Archives collection. This is a bootleg that I actually, I think I bought from uh, Eddie Brandt's when they would sell off some stuff. Uh, uh, like the places that would sell off bootlegs would be Eddie Brandt or uh, Kim's Video.
2: Yeah, Kim's Video. But,
1: uh, but Kim's Video has always had a, a uniform look. I think this is an Eddie Brandt's, and you can tell that it's a Xerox copy from a, a, a British Tape because you have the the 18 oh yeah that's right number on there all right it's like and,
2: CSI yeah
1: and it could and it was taken from an MGM uh, UA uh, home video and the back of the box says George C Scott stars as a retired gangster who can't resist one last assignment to drive an escaped prisoner across Spain to France high speed chases over treacherous mountain passes follow as it develops into a race against the law and the underworld. What's strange about that description is it's one of the shortest descriptions we've ever <laughs> read, but in one way or another, it kind of describes the yeah. plot. We can decide how much more detail we want to go into it, but that actually describes the plot.
2: Yeah, to a T. Um,
1: the Last Run is a gangster movie. It is uh, about where um, George C. Scott plays a fellow who was uh you know, more or less, I guess, a getaway driver. He, he's a, a criminal specialist and he's you know, he's a wheel man. And, um, he's been more or less retired for the last nine years. Um, it's revealed in the film that at some point his, uh, uh, his three-year-old son died. That's extremely touching, especially for me as a two and a half year old son at home. Um, uh, his 3-year-old son died and then his whole seemingly his whole life kind of fell apart after that his marriage fell apart and uh and he kind of he you know he had money he had uh he 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 had, he had done good for himself as a as a wheelman so he kind of retired from the business and just kind of drops out of life as as we know it he moves to portugal buys a fishing boat, and just has this, like, fisherman guy, uh, Aldo Sombrell, the great Aldo Sombrell from yeah. Italy, from Navajo Joe, is his fisherman. And he just lives this, like, really kind of nice little life uh, in Portugal in this little uh, uh, village. And it's a, uh, uh, it's a nice little life, but it's also no life <laughs> at the same time. And after nine years, enough time has passed. you He could die tomorrow, and he wouldn't care. He's just... Taking up space, but he decides that he wants to do one more job. Not for the money. There's money involved, but he's not doing it for the money. It's just, you know, he's he's ripened on the vine the last nine years so much. He wants to do another job just to see if he can do another job. Can you know? Are his motor reflexes the same Is his mind? The same? Can he keep together? Can he? Uh, uh, can he not panic? Can he not lose control? Yeah. You know, uh, he wants to. Think like a professional on the job again. You, know, you almost get the impression he wants to do it. He wants to be successful at it. He wants to pull it pull it off, and then he'd probably kill himself. You yeah. got you kind of get the impression that that's where he's he's coming from. He yeah, just, when
2: he's gunning that car down the road and practicing, yeah, yeah. you kind of feel like, well, if I crash, I crash. Yeah, who what cares? F- who, who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, George C. Scott, uh, George C. Scott is hired to uh, – uh, ferry some guy from, uh, organized crime from one place to another. And it turns out that, uh, the organization has arranged, a, uh, a prison escape. And, you know, during the escape, the guy hops into, uh, uh, George C. Scott's car and it's George C. Scott's job to ferry him where he's supposed to go. Um, and, and so then the, the guy also said, Hey, we have a change of plans. I have to pick up my girl. And so they pick up his girl, who's played by Trish Vanderveer in the film. And then the rest of the movie is the back and forth relationship between this old timer, you know, who's the driver, this young, obnoxious, greasy punk, a wild, seemingly unpredictable. Yeah, a hitman. He's a a hitman. He's
2: He's a, 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 yeah, he's a killer. I go
1: bang, bang, and the lights go out. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and his girl. Who, on one hand, seems like an appendage, on the other hand, you sometimes seems like just like you know the go to girl, and then on other hands, it seems like she's the mastermind behind everything.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and, and 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 there is a uh, um, there is a neat a, there is a neat Jackie Brown aspect about the fact that uh, she's manipulating both the Tony Musante character who's playing the gangster, and she's manipulating the the uh, uh, George C. Scott character. And like Jackie Brown, you never know who she's being honest with. She's lying to somebody or else she's both telling both of them the truth all the time that lets you also not know where she's coming from. But
2: she's definitely more in charge than than she lets on. Absolutely. And and she might really be in charge because one thing I really like about the whole um, the the break and and the whole setup Mm. is that we don't get any kind of exposition that you would normally get. Like there's no meeting of the guys who are going to do the the break. You have no idea what's happening. We know he
1: has a job, but we don't know what the job is until it reveals itself. And it's
2: very realistic because if you're really doing a crime, you want to have almost like cells. You want to have everybody compartmentalized. And so his job is just to drive. You be here at this time and the guy will come to you. Yeah. You put him in your car and you split and you take him here.
1: Yeah. Like that's all he needs. If the to guards know. catch him, that's not your fault. Okay. You just get the fuck yeah, out of there. Yeah. Then you, <laughs> then you, then you take off and you ditch, no
2: yeah. one's the wiser for it. And so then we see these events happening that mm-hmm. are kind of, uh, you know, we slowly realize, oh, those are the other Confederates that he's yeah. never met. Yes. Who are actually just fulfilling their part of mm-hmm. the job. And it's
1: really kind of realistic. It's extremely realistic. And the movie also won, Richard, both Roger and myself are big fans of Richard Flesher. who's was like really one of those Hollywood directors where, uh, journeyman and artist meet. All right. Yeah. Sometimes it's, a, it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's terrific polished journeyman work. And sometimes in the case of Mandingo, it's just true decadent art.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 20,000 um, leagues under the sea.
1: Yes, exactly. And then, uh, you know, and then, you know, the fantastic thing, voyage and the thing, right. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic voyage. You know, uh, uh you know, he's an assignment guy. You know, he was a Daryl Zanuck's guy forever yeah. and ever and ever. And then he became Dino De Laurentiis guy, you know. Uh, in, in
2: fact, he re- was replacing a director on this film.
1: Absolutely. But the thing about it is naturally me and Roger like him because, uh, uh, as opposed to a lot of, uh, these fellows out there like that, like Tom Grise or whatever, Flusher obviously had a flair for lurid material. He yeah. had a flair for punchy shit. That's so true. If you were talking about, uh, uh, Great sequences from Flesher's movies. Uh his epic of Howard Fass's novel Barabbas. Oh, yeah, yeah. With Anthony Quinn. So you go the whole story of Barabbas, but at some point, you know, he's he's a slave, and him and Victoria Gossman are slaves. And at some point they're thrown in as as cannon father for uh, uh uh gladiatorial purposes. Jack Palance plays like Rome's greatest gladiator of all time. And then, uh, 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 there are two slaves that are thrown in there just to be, you know, massacred by him, you know, for spectacle for the, for the Romans. And that whole sequence, it, because the whole film, more than the pious biblical epics coming out of Hollywood, it it had more of a peplum, more of an Italian feel. But then that section is the greatest peplum section I've never seen in a peplum.
2: I just mm-hmm. have to mention, um, in preparing for this, I wanted to just watch a few scenes from mm-hmm. uh, Flesher movies. Mm-hmm. And so one of the scenes I popped on was for Torah Torah Torah. Oh uh-huh. And it was the attack sequence. I just Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wanted to see the spectacle of a Hollywood professional, a true yeah, uh-huh. like workman, craftsman comes up. Yeah, but through,
1: with all a 20th century Fox special effects money at his disposal for that era,
2: for that era, everything behind him. And there is this scene where this airplane crashes into other airplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and during the attack, it's harrowing.
1: Oh yeah, I, I actually remember that from the, t- from the TV spot. You see these
2: extras like yeah, yeah. kind of running from the uh, flaming no, no, wreckage. No, it
1: looks no, it looks like it's that. Incredible. It looks like that actual newsreel footage of the Hindenburg crashing. When you see those people running as the thing yes. is like literally crashing right behind, like them.
2: running uh, and falling, like yeah. <laughs> you know, like you would think I wouldn't do, and you uh, do. Uh, 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 <laughs> it, it, like it's such a harrowing, intense sequence. Mm-hmm. It's so. Powerful. I mean this is And wings
1: of planes just fiery flying off by the camera lens. Yeah, I mean
2: <laughs> Flusher was a guy who could handle it big yeah. and then he could dial it in close on a movie like Ten Rillington Place. And
1: again, we still haven't even talked about any specific scenes in Mandinga, which I think oh my- is just one of the most artistic and lurid movies. Made by a studio ever of all time. <laughs> anyway, so back to uh, 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 the last run. I believe you have a Franklin Bruner review. Yeah, he if did I'm not a little mistaken.
2: capsule review that easily could have been pulled from the back of the Canadian release of this movie mm-hmm. on the VHS box of that. I'm, But probably not. It's, it, it must have been for a. It's from the Winnipeg Press? Probably from the Winnipeg City Press. George C. Scott plays a getaway driver who's tried to leave the business and live a normal rural life with the woman he loves. But fate won't have it, and he must come back into a changed business where the thieves have forgotten honor, and it befalls on him to remind them of it. Needless to say, there is some terrific driving through a Vistian landscapes as bleak as our anti-hero's empty and longing soul. If you liked the driver, and its practical remake drive, then you'll like it behind the wheel of the last run. R for reverse doesn't
1: work. (laughs) Very... (laughs) very short sweet and right to the <laughs> right to the point with a head scratching ending <laughs> <laughs> if bogart were able to make movies in the 70s i can totally see bogart playing this role
2: well he yeah. was coming off of patton yeah uh-huh. and so he was like academy award winning george c scott yeah, yeah. and i you know he, he did a bunch of tv stuff and then this like right afterwards mm-hmm. and i suspect He must have had a piece in this because it seemed like he was dictating the shots on it.
1: It does. He was
2: hiring directors. He was firing directors. He was hiring his co-stars and firing his co-stars.
1: Normally, we normally I don't like to mention facts that are on IMDb because you basically don't listening to the show for us to repeat fucking IMDb. Uh, You know, uh, unfortunately, most of the stuff that I've always known about the Last Run is on. IMDb and their trivia is, and what it is that originally the, uh, the director of the movie was John Houston and he'd been attached for some time and him and George C. Scott had done a couple of movies together, the list of Adrian messenger and the Bible. And, uh, uh, one Houston, uh, wanted uh, a rewrite to the script, which is pisses Alan Sharp off to this day. George C. Scott said, no, there will be no rewrite to the script. This is the script I said yes to you. You can fucking leave it alone. All right. And, uh, then he didn't like the European actresses that they were trying to uh, cast as uh, as the girl in the movie. So To he,
2: fulfill their European co-production. Yes, probably. exactly.
1: And so he shit-canned them. All right. And then he ended up telling the producers, uh, it's either Houston or me. And so they fired Houston. And uh, Joyce C. Scott brought on uh, Richard Flesher. And then Flesher and uh, Scott loved each other and worked together many times since. They were, they're in the Cross Swords together. Right. They do the New Centurions together. Yeah. One of Scott's biggest movies of the 70s is The yeah. New Centurions. Uh, um, it's an American production. Even though the writer is Scottish, it has an American feel, a tough guy, American staccato feel. And George C. Scott brings that, and he brings that. He to
2: brings it. America to this movie. But
1: Tony Mestante brings America to it too. I yeah, mean, true. and, and yeah. so does. Uh, I I agree that it shouldn't have been a a Claudia Cardinelli type. I, it, it's good that Trish Van is is American. So they're all got bring this American thing. Yet it really resembles a European crime film because it all takes place in Europe and the, and the European cars and the European roads and the European mountain roads. It, 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 has a, it has a French crime film kind of feel. It has an Italian, uh, uh, it, you know, it could be a Fernando de Leo kind of, kind of picture except with the class
2: well, of an American studio production. You even have an American composer, Jerry Goldsmith, doing an Italian uh, Morricone-style score.
1: I think his theme for the last run is one of his best themes. It's I even, a beautiful theme. I have the theme, I have the soundtrack album. I found myself playing it like two days later, all right? And yeah. like played the whole damn album because it was, it was, it was so good. It's a wonderful soundtrack album if you get it. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's totally Jerry Goldsmith doing Morricone, but doing it beautifully. Yeah. Doing it beautifully.
2: I wanted to call out um, Sven Nykvist, who is the, uh, this is his first English language movie. Uh-huh. I, I understand. Uh-huh. And it's It's, 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 he makes this bleak. It's exquisite. Franklin Browner says it all when he says like Sven Nykvist's bleak Mm -hmm. kind of landscapes that
1: really reflect Mm -hmm. the character. Now, by the way, though, I'm not the Biggest fan of that cinematographer when he does studio movies. They oftentimes I find them kind of pretentious the way he shoots them. I, I, I find the look of Canary Row pretentious. I find the look of, of the uh, it was a
2: very uh, modern looking yeah. film when it was made. Kennery yeah, the,
1: the post uh, Postman Always Rings Twice, uh, uh a, little mur, a little murky. Yeah, I find it, I find it pretentious. I mean, but I love it in The Last Run. It's, I love the last, it's I, textural, the look of it it's textural. Fantastic. It doesn't feel like a studio. Hollywood studio film, except in all the pizzazz it has, you know. uh,
2: Russell Lloyd, the guy who did the editing, I think deserves a little special like gold star because this- movie has one of the best cuts in it that I've seen in a long time. And it's that impact where George C. Scott oh my God. drives his 1956 BMW 503 convertible, which is like a very rare car. And he's just trashing it by like dirt roading it through the movie, practically. And at one point he uses it like a weapon and he just nails this fucker, this uh, this guy, in one of the most convincing car human collisions yeah. i have ever witnessed it was so freaking intense and i think that you know why i dem- I asked you to play it back for yeah me.
1: and i think the reason that that will one the, the the impact cut works but i think the reason that the shot before it works so well is i think it's one of those things is when the car hit the stuntman i think the stuntman flew to the left Further than anyone expected him to fly, and the camera operator just was deaf enough to catch it. Sven Nickvist himself, probably. Yeah, exactly. Probably himself was was deaf enough to catch it. It's just going on a little further than you would expect, thus making it more realistic, thus giving it more time to actually be able to do the impact cut. And when they (laughs) and when they match, if if it happened sooner, you wouldn't know what you saw.
2: Yeah, and when they match, (laughs) and when they match cut it to his to his landing. Yeah. I mean, it's so effective and so riveting. These are the kind of, you know, visual effects we used to get when you couldn't just do it all like but this in is, post. But this is all... You did it through cinema, the power of cinema, the power of a simple cut. Uh,
1: the thing about The Last Run is, you know, it, it came out in 1971 when it came out. I don't think it was a complete flop, but it wasn't necessarily what you'd call a popular hit or anything like that. It was probably just okay. But... That was back when, you know, double features were the—that the, was the way people saw movies, and that's the way studios put movies together. So the thing is, a studio like MGM would have a film like The Last Run. It came out, it, 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 it does what it does, but it's the perfect film for the second film on an MGM Double yeah, because it's good enough to be the first film. Yes, it's good enough to be the first one. But frankly, to tell you the truth, it's even a little better as the second film. You know what I mean? Yeah. The modesty of it actually fits into the second slot kind of perfect. And there is a modesty to the film. Um, the point of this whole story is The Last Run ended up being in its own way Quite popular and actually ended up being seen by many people because the last run was a very popular second film on the double feature bill for like five years. There was all these movies that actually, if you just look at their box up, because they they don't really get any money for being the second film. All right, they got made their money when they were the top film.
2: It's a loss leader.
1: Yes, exactly. So if you're just looking at box office figures, you would have no idea that some of these movies literally played for. Five, six, seven years as the lower half of films. And like, God knows how many people saw them. I mean, all kinds of eyeballs ended up seeing those movies over, uh, you know, over a five-year period.
2: Well, if you love an existentialist crime film, as I do, I mean, this is like the kind of the exactly-
1: oh, Well, one of the things that I said- my alley. One of the things I think I said when we were watching it, I go, oh, wow. This could- Almost be if Jean-Pierre Melville was making his first English language movie, this could almost be that. Yeah, in fact. In, in fact, if you said it was, I'd believe you. Yeah, absolutely, because
2: <laughs> Melville also had that that um, Hollywood pro- or I would not want to call him a Hollywood professional. He was a Paris professional. Yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. He had that uh, that workman like that craftsman like qualities. Uh, I will say,
1: a I will say, it's less self conscious. <laughs> <than if laughs> Jean-Pierre Melville did it. There's no more to talk about the story of the last one, Frankly, to kind of uh, kind uh, of give uh, away all of the the, the, the give away the charm. All the right, charm you know, of because it, yeah. I mean uh, the great twists and turns. It, of it has a very slight story, but there are but like like the route that George C. Scott is planning. It's a straight ahead line, but with major turns, yeah. and everything changes when you make those major turns. One of the things, if you're a listener of the show, if you liked what we, uh, a, a companion piece to the last run would probably be Hennessy. Absolutely, they almost seem like opposite numbers and, and, and by of the each way, other. Uh, scale, action-wise, deliverance of uh, and of Rod the product. Steiger
2: and George C. Scott easily could have switched uh, roles and have, uh, and e- both enjoyed each other in each other's movie. Easily
1: could have switched roles, and t- as far as uh, as far as like the you know, uh, uh, like I said, our returning champions. It seems like George C. Scott and Rod Steiger are, like own this spot in their own way. That that's interchangeable. <laughs> Those are some pretty pretty tough men. With Scott just like Steiger you never exactly know who is exactly going to show up when you see a Steiger movie I mean you you see a Steiger movie and you see something like a uh, uh, the illustrated man you know you get bravado and you've, you you know, uh, get all those ripe line readings and you get just you yeah, know, he, muscul- muscularing it up you, you, know, you get uh, the
2: opposite in The Loved One yeah. with uh, well, Dr. Joy Boy one. well
1: actually you don't get the opposite you just get the quirky comedic <laughs> version okay? that, that's just nothing <laughs> subtle about what he's doing as Joy Boy you know but then when you get to Hennessy he kind of knows his role in Hennessy isn't to emote to the moon and isn't to chew to scenery mm-hmm. it's to tell this tough little story. And Same it, with Dirty Hands. Yeah, and it's yeah, exactly. And The Last Run is very similar. This is not the George C. Scott of rage, and this is not the George C. Scott of Patton, and it's definitely not the George C. Scott emoting to the moon in the hospital, which I love.
0: Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're back, and we're joined by Gala Raquel Avery. Hello, Gala.
0: Hello, Quentin. Hey, Roger. Hey, Gala. So, Quentin, let's talk about this VHS tape a little bit because I'm sitting here, like, gnashing my teeth because I don't have one. Mm. I can't find this on VHS, and I'm— I don't know if it came out in America. So it didn't. So I asked a Uh few of my VHS collector Mm -hmm. friends—thank you, guys— who told me that it does not have a VHS release in the United States and that it was such a flop that it didn't get one. And Mm I'm really upset about it because – I want one. Well, What's funny yeah. is the
2: beginning of this tape, didn't it have like an additional. Um, yeah, it did. No, like a, oh. by special arrangement. Yeah, this I, is a
1: copy, licensed copy. No, it makes a point of, okay, with that, which is not the case with the copy I'm watching, which is obviously a bootleg, uh, but it makes a point of saying at the beginning, this is not a second generation copy. This is, you know, basically made by MGM UA for you uh, to rent. And then it has the standard. Warning, but with completely different verbiage that goes into great detail of what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah, just have Jimmy
2: in the mail room write that. It's, like, it's just because it's completely unlike anything yeah. anything I've read. You
1: are allowed to show this movie in your house to your friend. You are not allowed to invite people over, charge them a mission. <laughs>
0: So I clearly did not watch this on VHS. I watched this on Amazon Prime, and I feel like I did something illegal here because it only cost me 74 cents to watch this movie with a promotional credit. Mm. I don't know why, but I feel like I should have paid a lot more to watch this. It's
2: like mm. they're still pushing it as a, yeah. a, as a secondary loss leader, <laughs> <laughs> even today. Okay, yeah.
1: Okay, if you if you rent the last ride and you get to watch the movie, and you get a free bowl of soup. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Two seconds in, I'm like, okay, this might be what we call a gala movie. And then 18 minutes in, when he's at the church, I'm like, oh my god, I love this movie already. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sold.
2: Yeah, I knew that this was gonna fall into your whole into
0: my category because one of my favorite genres is heist gone yeah. wrong, and mm-hmm. this is like bordering. I mean, there's no heist in it, but it's like a bordering on that genre. And I'm well, like, there's just... kind
2: of a heist. They, they, it's the, breaking that guy
0: free. Assignment is a gone heist. wrong. Assignment yeah. gone wrong. There you go. I should change my favorite genre. <laughs> Okay, so the the driving is great. Actually, but- I would make
1: a case though. The assignment doesn't go wrong. Things happen. Yeah. He he's is a hundred percent successful right. in his assignment. Say no more. But he is a hundred percent successful You're in right. his assignment. You're right. He did what he wanted to do, and he to did the, it to the T. Yeah. Uh, what he what he said to the imaginary priest, he did.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So the driving is so beautiful, specifically that opening, like after he's like fixed his car uh, and he's driving. I love exquisite. That. It's gorgeous, and people always say like the Italian job is having like really good driving, but like yeah, come I don't, on. I don't come agree. On, guys. I don't agree. Look at the last run. It's over
1: That is, I've always said that that movie's over.
0: I, yeah. it's not one of my favorites. When when I first, uh, I do like Michael Caine. I
1: told you to blow the bloody doors off. Okay, we'll continue.
2: <laughs> the driving in this and just the car itself, because this is just a lovely car oh, yeah. and that it's a convertible and... Uh, I mean, it's a
0: surprising vehicle. Like, mm-hmm. you don't imagine that this car in particular would be the hero car. It's a
1: sporty little foreign job, man. It gets in, gets out. <laughs> One of the things that it's, it's so great... In the uh, second half of the movie, when he actually gets into genuine car chases. Yeah. All right. Where he's being chased by the bad guys. And they're on these treacherous mountain roads in Europe. The thing that's so fucking exciting about it is George C. Scott doesn't care if he dies. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, All right. And not only does he not care if he dies- At the end of the day, he doesn't care if he kills the two people in the car with him. But the gangsters chasing him don't want to die. (laughs) So they're not quite taking the blind turns on the mountain road the way he is. Well, that
2: fantastic chase that goes through that little village where they're, I mean, actually, as we were watching it, we were noticing how Richard Flesher tells a story with a single shot. Yes. Yes. And so he would do an establishing shot of like their car pulling into uh, whatever village they're in, in in Spain. And a guy, you know, a bunch of sheep and a- It was a bunch of goats. A bunch of goats and a goat herder guy would kind of walk through the frame. And
1: that just lets us know that it's a primitive village. Yeah. As as opposed to Antwerp or someplace like that. Later on, (laughs) they go to
2: a different place, which is supposed to be like the bigger city. It's Mm. like suddenly there's cosmopolitan people and they're walking around for dinner in the foreground. They're just like, and so he's always like, Grabbing whatever elements and putting them into the movie to uh, to kind of create the the scene it's that a, was probably fa- the same director that yeah. was probably the same location that was probably it their probably crew was. hotel
1: and he just you know I, I completely agree you know it's like you know uh, uh, just efficient you go to those filmmaking. kind of little villages and those little cobblestone villages can actually be a metropolis or they can actually be a little thing all right it's all
2: it's all the people who are walking. It's the life that you create around it. It's the dressing that you do.
1: Yeah. But just having that little cobblestone in, and then a goat herder walks by with with, uh, 20 goats. All right. All of a sudden you think, oh, primitive little village. All right. And now you're in the story and now you know, okay, well, they're in in some back alley Hamlet.
0: (laughs) So George C. Scott, I have to wonder, because you guys said maybe he had like some stake in this film. What is up with him and sons? Like the loss of a son. Cinematically, because in Rage, right. he also loses his son, and I looked and, and
1: Also, he you know uh, he loses his wife and son in uh, the Changeling.
0: Yeah, and it's heart wrenching. But all of his children are, I think, still living. Oh yeah. So yeah. I wonder, like, where this theme, like, does it come from him, or is it just something that he finds himself in as an actor repeatedly, or is it uh, just,
1: just? I think it's just a. It's just it, a, it's a, effective. It's a good dramatic. You know, he's. Stomping down on the molten lava that is inside of George C. Scott's soul is his stock and trade. Yeah, and sometimes the movie is about him keeping a hold of the lava, and sometimes the movie is about it erupting. <laughs> okay, so in Hardcore, it's about it erupting. Here, it's about putting a lid on the on the on the uh, lid of the volcano and, and letting it simmer and boil. Um there was this aspect that I remember thinking about it immediately as me and Roger were watching the film, the first image of George C. Scott, which is kind of was, oh, eagle face <laughs> you know, uh, uh, in the garage pit underneath, you know, the, the car, working on it and his grimace even though he wasn't grimacing he was just kind of working on his car but the grimace was like the grimace he has on his face when he's carrying his son you know running through the field to get his son to the car in In uh, rage rage.
2: just a man brimming with but i
1: would actually have to say again look. since i've become a father i've just become the biggest softy in the world but i mean uh i recognize his anguish you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, you know, my son is two and a half years old. His son is three. When he died, I can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine. It was disturbing to imagine. You know, it ripped my heart out just thinking about it. There's something sweet in the movie, also about the fact that those tragedies hit him so hard, and it's interesting that he hasn't killed himself. It's interesting this life that he tried to negotiate, that he actually did. He actually negotiated, and he lived it for nine years. If you even think about another, like this being a second movie of of, of his story... This is a happily ever after. He pulled mm-hmm. his last job, and then he retired to this village, and he never got caught, and he had enough money, and he was able to live a life. And now we pick up the story nine years later, but it's, it, it means nothing to him. Yeah,
2: none of it worked out.
0: Yeah, he has this really like speaking of the script is so it's, it's, it's existential.
2: Good. Yeah, he's, he's on it. This is an he's having an existential crisis, mm-hmm. and while he's been away in those nine years, the business has changed. Yeah. Behaviors have changed. P- people's uh, professionalism, you know, well, double crosses abound
1: yeah, everywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. in
2: this world all of a sudden. And he seems like he's, you know, the old timer.
0: He actually, Quentin, to your point, has this line where he says that for the past nine years, he's been trying to disappear into the landscape. Mm-hmm. And then he re- like, he's like he been trying. He was a boat captain for a while. It just didn't work. Like He's not mm-hmm. from there. And then he says, I'm just one of those people who just don't belong anywhere. Mm-hmm, yeah, and it's such a good like the script is. Oh my god, it's like I oh, I love it.
1: I'm telling you, you you got to see the other Alan Sharp movies, I, man. He's one of the best screenwriters of the '70s. Like my Absolutely. notes, my
0: notes this time are like mostly just quotes. Like uh, the guy from Bird mm-hmm. of the Crystal Plumage, yeah, yeah, in, uh,
1: Tony Missante, yeah, Tony Masante.
0: yeah, Tony Musante. He about George C. Scott's character says it's like the guys they pull out of solitary. They don't know how to talk anymore about mm-hmm. George C. Scott, and it's yeah, so yeah. good because he's put himself into solitary. Mm-hmm.
1: To hint at the last moment of the movie without revealing it, a line is said that refers to Scott that you don't like. It's ugly, and it's bitter, and it's cynical, and you don't like the character for saying it, but he's not not wrong. He's not wrong. Mm -hmm. He's not wrong. And wow, how cool is it? To watch a crime film that can hold two different thoughts in its head at the exact same yeah. time. Yeah, well, it, it and was, both be right. <laughs> yeah. It, it was
2: kind of striking because I uh when it first started off and Tony Masante first showed up mm-hmm. and he's like, you know, gum chewing, popping around, young, you know, like, hey, 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 you know, he's just like this uh this uh-huh. annoying asshole.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly. And, and I thought, no, oh, like, man. he's
1: no, like, for a while you are like, oh, he's going to ruin the movie. Yeah, I'm like, he's going to ruin this <laughs> fucking movie. He's ruining, he's bringing me down, man.
2: <laughs> and by God, there comes a point where I'm rooting for the guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also- int- That was a trick was, to pull like, that off with It's me. also interesting how much you like George C. Scott's character in this movie. At some point in the third act, he gives uh, a sober assessment of, of how Massante handled himself, and he says it with with appreciation. You know, he says he did a good job back there, and all of a sudden, you, you completely feel differently about yeah. Tony Massante once you actually hear uh, George C. Scott applaud him. He, he makes it
2: okay <laughs> for us to like it. He takes the barrier down for us. Yeah, yeah. we're we're now, and We still don't really like him. <laughs> well, yeah, not really, not really, not really.
0: <laughs> One thing about the movie is that it does not fall apart in the end, yeah, like yeah. so many of these VHS tapes do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes it so satisfying. Yeah, yeah. So good. And also, I think it would be a great rewatch. I have only seen it once, but I mm-hmm. think I would love to watch it again. With Hennessy.
1: Yeah. yeah, it would be <laughs> a great double feature with Hennessy. Uh, and one last thing, in case anybody out there doesn't know it, is uh, one of the things that really fat, ran afoul of uh, George C. Scott during the Houston time was that they wanted the uh, European actress, Tina Almonte to play the girl. Scott insisted... That she be an American. And then they found Trish Vanderveer. He cast Trish Vanderveer. And then they fell in love during the making of the movie. And uh, then, for the, for the pretty much for the next 10 years, every other George C. Scott movie starred Trish Vanderveer. <laughs> I remember when we were. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, me and his friends were watching uh, the J. Lee Thompson movie, Messenger of Death, all right, that stars uh, Charles Bronson and Trish Devere. And I go, oh, well, Bronson apparently got tired of working with his wife, Jill Ireland, for 30 movies in a row, decided to do a movie with Dorsey uh, Scott's wife.
2: <laughs> is, is it is it true that John Borman was, uh, was going to direct this at one time? And that George C. Scott and him also didn't get along.
1: I don't know. I, I I'd heard that that he was brought up at one point. All right, but I don't know what. Because that's happened actually
2: a really interesting choice. He would actually have been a very interesting director for this. I mean, yeah. with his uh, uh, kind of I think so. man in a landscape type. Uh, no,
1: well, no. Like along with Fletcher, he would have been. Uh, uh, he would have been terrific. I think Carter DeHaven Haven had also like an association with Houston for a while, though. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: If this conversation about the last run did not spur your interest, I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) But you're in luck because this is available for streaming all over. Unfortunately, I don't have a VHS tape of it. If some collector out there has one and wants to give it up to me, call me. But until then, if, I'll
1: just if, if some collector in London.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Someone else might have a bootleg.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Some pretty. a couple of bootlegs of yeah, yeah, the exactly. last run lying around.
1: <laughs> someone, an, someone if, out there. If, an, if another customer of Eddie Brand's. <laughs> When they replaced this one after I bought it. <laughs> but I hadn't realized that my, I didn't, when I bought it, I just bought it. I didn't realize, oh, hey, I didn't think that it was one, it was a bootleg. I didn't notice that it was a a, a, a British cover. I hadn't thought about the fact that it hadn't been released in America. <laughs> you were just happy to have it. It makes me appreciate my uh, video, and I'm a guy who actually even has a 16 print. It makes me appreciate my video copy. <laughs>
2: West, it was ugly. I smell
1: shit. All right, that'll be enough of that talk. To be a sidekick, you gotta learn the ropes. And low, down mean. Very good. Thank you, But at least you knew where you stood. Either you get your rifle and come with me, or I'll shoot your wife in the shoulder. From the director of police academy, Tom Berenger. Rustler's Rhapsody,
0: ready to Starts tomorrow at a theater near you. Check newspapers. Ready for a rootin' tootin' good time? Stop by the new Beverly Cinema to see Rustler's Rhapsody with Co-Hit The Last Run. These flicks play on pop poppin' 35mm film for two nights. Yeah, you heard me right, two nights. On Tuesday, March 21st, and Wednesday, March 22nd. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For even more information, visit thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film!
1: Okay, we're back, and the second movie on our show today is a comedy that I actually saw this when it came out in the 80s. I actually saw it on opening weekend at the—actually, I remember, I saw it at the Village during its opening weekend uh, in Westwood Village. It's uh, Hugh Wilson, who is the director of— uh, uh, police academy, which I never really cared for. Uh, it's just follow-up movie, that kind of movie where you can do anything you want because you've had a big smash.
2: Yeah, you've just had the biggest hit in the world. What yeah. are you going to do now?
1: And so Paramount backed him with a Western comedy called Rustler's Rhapsody, starring Tom Berenger, amongst other people, but definitely starring Tom Berenger. This movie was talking above my head, and I still understood the basis of the comedy of the genre that's going on, but it was, but I, I had a basis. I'd even read books about the whole Gower Gulch, uh, sunset corral, uh, uh, old school Western kind of story. So I I, I knew from what they were parroting. but I, it's not like I'd watched a bunch of them. All right. So, but that's me with a little bit of knowledge. The majority of the audience, uh, that were anywhere my age or, or, you know, 20 years less than me, you know, this movie was going over the heads of, uh, of most of the audience, but they still thought it was funny. You know, they didn't they didn't they didn't need to get the genre film comments going on. They just got the jokes.
2: They didn't even have to know. I mean, they knew the general idea yeah, that this is old they just movies, thought it was, yeah, yeah. but they didn't have to know these specific
1: yeah. old films. They got the general comedy, but what I think is terrific about this comedy is it's not general. It is minutely specific. It's razor sharp. As and and apparently they work from the assumption that nobody in the audience had to get it. <laughs> they just understood it. They yeah. got it. They well, got t- the So joke. it's
2: working on deeper levels than than its
1: surface. Exactly. So let me read the back of it. Tumbling tumbleweeds. The Wild West goes wacko when the greatest fast drawing, fancy dressing, silver spurred guitar playing, singing cowboy movie, matinee idol, Rex O'Hurlihan, Tom Berringer, hits the saddle in Rustler's Rhapsody, a cockeyed, affectionate send up of the 40s B movie western. Classic western stereotypes and cliches get turned on their ear when our fearless hero, fully dressed in white and on top of his dancing horse, Wildflower, rides into the tackiest town west of the Pecos to do good deeds and defy desperadoes. Written and directed by Hugh Wilson, who is responsible for the hilarious Police Academy, Rustler's Rhapsody also stars Andy Griffith and Mary Lou Henner.
2: I believe you just uh, conjured uh, Slim Pickens
1: <laughs> yeah, <I did> <laughs> to, read our,
2: to read the back of our box. <laughs>
1: uh, tape number 3495, located in the comedy section, not the Western section, located in the comedy section under R. The idea of the movie is very generationally specific to the people who who made this movie because what the movie's... Uh, ripely making fun of is the series of a uh, kiddie matinee westerns that came out in the late 30s and through the 40s and into the 50s. They all died out about mid-50s when the television came in. But the idea behind these kitty matinee westerns is uh, these are movies that were literally made for children. They feature a, a, a cowboy and they would have very cliched adventures and very cliched set of characters. And, and, and sometimes they were uh, hard fighting cowboys, and sometimes they were singing cowboys, and sometimes there was a combination of the two. But they, you know, they they dressed in fancy clothes, and they had these kind of unrealistic stories, and they always came out on top, and they always beat the villains. And all the characters around them were uh, kind of the same characters, the same kind of cliches you saw in one movie after another, and it was all wrapped up in an hour. <laughs> Because the movies were literally like about fifty-four minutes or you have know, sixty minutes long, unless they were really big budget affairs where they might be shown as the second half of of a of a nighttime feature, they were never shown at night. They were literally shown during the day during on the weekends, you know. So you for the kitty matinee, so you would have uh uh the new. Roy Rogers movie or the new Johnny Mac Brown movie or the new Ken Maynard movie or Lash LaRue movie would uh, uh, show up for Saturday, Sunday at your theater. There would be about 20 minutes of uh, cartoons. So probably about three or four cartoons. Maybe a little news. Yeah. And then you would see maybe a newsreel. You would definitely see uh, the episode of whatever uh, chapter, whatever a serial was playing. You'd see the next episode of that. And then the main feature was the cowboy movie. Again, that was about an hour long. And... uh and one of the things that these guys did is they also toured the country. So at some point, one of these, you know, even if you lived in a small little Georgia town or a small little Louisiana town that you know showed these movies, at some point, one of these cowboys would show up in your town. And they'd be there uh, at the uh, uh, at the theater on the on that Saturday or Sunday, and they maybe they'd have their horse, maybe they wouldn't, but they'd go and introduce the movie, and they'd sign autographs, and you know, all,
2: all the kids would show up, and
1: but the concept of the movie, where the movie's jumping off at, is it shows you like a rickety. 16-millimeter tinny sound print of uh one of these- uh, uh, uh
2: Horses chasing, you know, a guy on a horseback chasing another guy on a yeah, horseback. It's all
1: black and white. It, bang, it has It like, has like, you know, this tinny 16-millimeter one-track sound going on. And uh, you see- Looks like
2: a, it's shot on an old Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's in black and white, and it's rickety, and then like you know, you're you're seeing it play the way like if I were to string up a 16 millimeter print of one of these, and we were to watch it, it looks like that. Okay, so they make it look even a little worse. All right, uh, so the concept of the movie is to take the Roy Rogers character from a Gower Gulch B movie. Kitty Western and the cliches and the storyline and all that the, and the fancy horse wildfire all that shit take all that take all the cliches but stick it in a Sam Peckinpah movie <laughs> <laughs> give it this give it Sam Peckinpah realistic violence give it slow motion violence
2: drop that into the smack dab into the middle of the
1: 1980s yeah it has like the. F- THX surround sound now with whizzing bullets happening. That was not the case then, and is bloodier, and it just all everything. You know, uh, and
2: since then, spaghetti westerns have come yeah. into existence, and so we have yeah, and that the, element brought in middle, eventually uh, mid, through mid, Fernando Ray
1: mid movie. Fernando Ray, all right, from spaghetti westerns themselves comes in, and they make a comment about spaghetti westerns. Yeah, I like the narrator. He goes, you know, and sometime in the sixties they started making these spaghetti westerns. I was always jealous of these fellas because. Uh, they always had better background music than we did. And they always wore these really magnificent looking long dusters even though it always seemed like it was 120 in the shade. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, it is cool because when the Italians show up they're all in these dusters. They're, you can see the difference mm-hmm. between the Italian view of the Old West and yeah, yeah. the classical view of the Old West and our
1: kind of yeah. now, 80, here, mid-80s view now, of the Old West. Yeah. Now here's the thing. Where my admiration for the movie truly, truly lies is it was different in the early 70s when Mel Brooks started doing his style of of parody because he's just bringing up old cliches and old movies that you've seen before. And by bringing them up and making fun of it, our laughter is coming from the recognition of the cliché.
2: Yeah, most successfully done with Young Frankenstein. Yes, exactly. But also
1: silent movie and high anxiety. No, oh, I mean, Blazing Saddles Blazing and everything. Blazing Saddles is the- now, now, I think the reason Young Frankenstein kind of works better as a moving movie than the rest, because... At the end of the day, he still is telling the Frankenstein story. And the Frankenstein story is that compelling. And even done in a comedy way, he still is committing to telling the story and you get involved in it. He's also
2: aping the look so well that it's really stunning. It's stunningly well matched to the the original look of those films.
1: But I can't imagine that movie working as well as it is without Gene Wilder because it is Gene Wilder's commitment to his performance that actually makes you take the movie vaguely seriously. As time would go on, that wouldn't be enough for me. Just presenting cliches and my and, and uh, presenting a familiar thing and laughing at my recognition—it was not funny enough for me. I think at a certain point, and I think we're, from from the time this movie came out to now, if you're going to engage in spoof, you need to deal in film criticism. You need to do gene splicing, subgenre criticism. It needs to be, and I don't mean you have to not like something when I say criticism, I mean, you need to engage in a critique of the genre, not just show me familiar tropes. And that's exactly what Rustler's Rhapsody does. It's giving a critique on that genre of Western, but Westerns in general, and how they don't work in the 80s.
2: Had Silverado come out before this film, or was it shortly after? I think it after? came out. I think after. Shortly I'm after. guessing
1: after. I'm guessing after. I'm making it sound like everything that's coming from it is funny is because of the the writer, Hugh Wilson's perspective. But one of the things that's really, really funny about the movie is... <laughs> It has almost a last action hero kind of aspect. Absolutely. Where uh, 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 Rex O'Hurlihan, Tom Berenger's character, is kind of coming to a consciousness inside of this never-ending cycle of movies. He has now completely come to the grips that every town is the same. <laughs> Yeah. That he is stuck on a never-ending conveyor belt of movies. And there is an inevitability to every single solitary aspect of this. He will go into a town. There will have be the big bad boss man of the town. There will be the girl. There will be all the cliché characters. He's seen them all before. He will win every single fight. He will. Ev- everything will happen the way it's always happened before. And he's disillusioned by it. You know, yeah. he's almost like George C. Scott, almost hoping to die to some degree or another. I'm overemphasizing well, that, but he's to some tra- degree. trapped
2: in an endless cycle. He knows that the villains are going to come after him. He knows that he's going to have to...
1: It's almost a weird genre take on Groundhog Day because he's living... Because Roy Rogers did live the same adventure. Again. Week in, again, week out, again. week in, week out. And, and Rexel Harlan is now is, is experiencing uh, uh, an awakening.
2: Well, and his awakening, as he's coming to this kind of self-actualization and self-realization and mm-hmm. understanding of the world, he's kind of realizing how um, in being the same, it's a kind of lie. Yeah, yeah. That's being broken open. It's kind of a shellacking
1: mm-hmm. on history that's been done by Hollywood. But what's also really interesting is he's the only character that has any sense of awareness. All the supporting characters that are nothing but cliches are always played by different people in the different movies. So these cliché characters don't know they're cliché characters. In fact, one of the most charming parts is when he meets the town drunk. He's like, "No, I've seen that big boss man before." And then they've got the corrupt sheriff, and then there's the the uh, a saloon girl with the heart of girl- gold, and the He's like, yeah. well, what about me? And then the town drunk goes, no, 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 no. Those are very individualistic people. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> they're in every yeah, town. If you go to the next town, there's- Every member, of, <laughs> I'll, I'll prove it to you. Do you have a school mom that is very pretty, but strangely asexual? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is the blacksmith an old burly, friendly guy that only gets mad when you burn down his barn? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so none of these characters know what's going on. So throughout the whole film as the storyline involved with uh, uh, the big bad boss man of the town, played not so very well by Andy Griffith. I think he's the weakest part of the movie. Uh, As the storyline progresses, see, Rex O'Hurlihan knows the storyline before it happens. So all the other characters are always, like, flipping out about the next turn of events. No, 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 that's okay. This happens every time. (laughs) Now, what the the bad guy will do is he'll do this, and then I will do this, you know, and then it'll it'll all be fine. Okay, I'm gonna... I have to say this because there's almost no point in talking about the movie unless I talk about this scene. But I think it might be the thing that makes you want to see the movie that that all my buildup has been to. So, in the third act of the movie, that is standard... All the henchmen of the big boss man have, have, have all stepped up against uh, Rexa Hurlihan and they've all they all got shot in the hand. <laughs> and they all. Because he's a good
2: guy. He's only going to shoot you in the head. He's only going to shoot
1: you in the head. Well, you guys want to hang around? Well, you know, uh, it's been kind of a hard day right. and, you know, kind of got to take care of our hands. <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah. That guy's really funny. That, that henchman. Yeah. Right. The henchman uh, guy. <laughs> uh, uh, um, so eventually, well, none of the uh, none of the henchmen work anymore, so they obviously have to hire like a big out of town torpedo, all right, to come in. Who's a badass gunfighter, and he's going to come into town, and and he's the hired guy. And then once Rexo Herlinghan faces him. Okay, that's it. Now and the, now the bad guy gets vanquished.
2: And that guy who they bring in happens yeah. to be Patrick Wayne. Yes,
1: John Wayne's son.
2: And he's amazing yeah. in this. Uh,
1: yeah, he's fantastic in it. And so, uh, you know, so they see the guy coming to town. And part of the thing about, you know, uh, 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 Rex O'Hurlihan is because he dresses like Roy Rogers in his most glitzy days. So it's like these... Uh, silk shirts and sequin shirts with like okay. sparkles and f-
2: a, sh- a red neck scarf maybe yeah, or- so,
1: a fringe <laughs> on the arm and whatever and so like he's got so many so many fancy clothes that when Rexo Hurlihan goes from town to town he has to he takes a wardrobe with him so there's a, a a mule pushing dragging a wardrobe so uh um they see the professional gunfighter riding into town and like oh there's the guy there's there's a the guy that the you know the colonel hired you know, to going, yeah, yeah, that's that's the fellow. That's the, that, that, well, don't worry about it. Don't, it happens every movie. <laughs> yeah. This is the last gasp of the, the villain. Once this doesn't work, then he's going to give up and and all you homestead, all you sheep people are going to be fine. And they've got but, all those like Mennonite sheep herder yeah, yeah, guys yeah, yeah. that are. But then he notices the out of town bad guy, the professional, in the ring around in town, is pulling a wardrobe of his own. And so then he comes into town to face the guy and he realizes. He's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. Yeah. And so they have- They've thrown the plot. Yeah, they've thrown the plot. They've literally flipped the script. And so they have this back and forth and they're both talking like two good guys. All right. You know, uh, Patrick Wayne knows the outcome of the story just as much as- Yeah, Tom,
2: we're, we're going to just shoot each other's hand indefinitely. Yeah, so it's just <laughs> as much as
1: Tom Berenger does. And he goes, well, you can't do this. You're a good guy. I'm a good guy. It just It's not going to work. And then Patrick Wayne goes- Well, then I guess the goodest guy wins. And then- At this this moment,
2: Berenger is having a crisis of confidence He's starting
1: to have a crisis of confidence. And he goes, oh, wait, no, 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 hold it. No, you're working for the bad guys. So I'm the better good guy. That's just it. That's just absolutely it. You know, because you're working for the bad guys, I'm obviously the the gooder guy. So I don't see how, it's impossible for you to win. Well, uh, one- say, I'm working for the bad guys. Well, that's kind of just your perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he logically talks him through it. He he works out his argument. That could be very judgmental. All right. You know, and Patrick Wayne starts listing the qualities that are important to being a confident good guy. And so it's like, you know, uh, 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 I can't remember what they all are, but there's something like, you know, uh, you're nice to children and old ladies. You're good to animals. Uh, uh, you always do this. You always do that. You're a confident heterosexual and the da, 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 da. Let's fight and see who wins. Okay, here we go. And then time wait a minute. You said confident heterosexual? <laughs> yes, confident heterosexual. I thought it would just had to be heterosexual. No, 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 no. You, you need confidence behind that heterosexualism. Okay, here we go. Uh. Okay, hold it for a second <laughs> <laughs> that is great film writing that is that is genre gene splicing, film criticism at its highest yeah absolutely. We won't say how everything turns out, but uh, you know uh I think this movie is just is a tremendous amount of fun uh and I think actually one of the best things about the movie is i So happy they hired a dramatic action actor like Tom Berenger to play the character, and not a comedy guy doing some Danny Kay version of the fellow. I like the fact that Tom Berenger looks like he could be the star of one of these movies, and I think he's sensational in the film. Uh, So, uh, what does uh, Franklin Browner have to say about uh, Hugh Wilson's amusing confection? Uh, He was prickly. He
2: was prickly, but I think he likes it. Mm -hmm. Derided as the other Blazing Saddles. Rustler's Rhapsody is much more Groundhog Day or Truman Show. In his awakening to self awareness, its singing cowboy, Rex O'Hurlihan, seems to be having realizations about the hidden nature of the American westward expansionism into the Old West. Indeed, it was Goebbels who said If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. Like a soldier who has seen the same outcome of one too many battles, the fact that the Hollywood machine has turned out so many serial singing cowboy movies of the exact same repeating story with the exact same repeating elements, our hero and we, his culturally mesmerized audience, find ourselves questioning the repeating media messages we were all fed as children. We had cowboy movies, superhero movies, sitcoms, soap operas, cartoons, or any other programming. Repetition leads to familiarity, and familiarity is comforting in troubling times, but it is a false shield. The suggestive gender subtext of the film, and that our hero meets his match in a mirror hero of neutral virtue, self-described as a lawyer, are statements the film makes that this reviewer is unequipped to parse.
1: Okay, and we're back, and we're joined by Gala Avery.
0: Yeehaw! Hey, guys. Okay, so as Quentin mentioned earlier, this movie is kind of like a parody, a love letter to the Kitty matinee cowboy movies. Apparently, it's an ode specifically to the Hopalong Cassidy films. simpler time! And the Hopalong Cassidy character, for those of you that don't know, because I didn't know this, as an American Western lover... Um, the Hopalong Cassidy character was created in 1904 by Clarence E. Mulford, and the books were made into a series of movies, in which actor William Boyd portrayed him 66 times.
1: Yeah, I wow. I, I look, I I'm familiar with these movies. I would not call him Hopalong Cassidy, all right, okay. because he this, I mean, he's obviously Gene Autry is who yeah. he obviously is, all right? Because uh, he has the costume of Roy Rogers, at Roy Rogers' highest. He's a singing cowboy. Hopalong Cassidy wasn't a singing cowboy. And
0: you know, and he also doesn't have the costume because when I was yeah. reading this specifically that it was like the Hopalong Cassidy. It's not, yeah. Hopalong Cassidy specifically wore a black hat. Yeah,
1: of course he did. Yeah, uh, which and, went uh,
0: against that stereotype that only villains wore black. Yes, and
1: you know, he would never wear a black hat. But not only that, though, even... Uh, um. When the town drunk character, who's very funny in the movie, uh, G.W. Bailey. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, uh, when he, be- uh, when he becomes the sidekick. All right. Yeah. He, you know, he's got to put on his sidekick outfit. I love that. Yeah. He's like, oh, I either got to put my drunk outfit on or I've got my sidekick outfit. He puts the sidekick. What, what are you wearing? Well, it's my sidekick outfit. All right. Well, okay. The sidekick outfit he's wearing is exactly what Smiley Burnett. Who was Gene Autry's sidekick always wore? I mean, it's an exact replica. like with that that
0: shirt, uh, yeah, that that checkered, that, checkered shirt. shirt. Yeah. It's
1: an exact replica of Sir Miley Burnett's out, outfit. Who was the most popular of all the sidekicks at that time?
0: Speaking of outfits, I love that that moment where um, he's telling him his sidekick, like, "Go get my shirt," yeah, yeah, but like specifically that blue one, not the checkered one, not the this one. <laughs> I don't want the teal one. I need this shirt. That yeah. was really funny. And I like watching this because you're right. The Westerns in this kind of way don't really fit into the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's like a Westworld quality where all of a sudden you've been playing the same scenario over and over and you're kind of sick of the game because all of the robots are mm-hmm. the same and they act the same. But I like it when he's talking to his future sidekick, the mm-hmm. or he's talking to the town drunk, and he goes through the characters, as Quentin said, yeah. and he says, like, oh, the blacksmith, and oh, the school teacher. And then GW Bailey says, Well, do they have a town drunk? And he goes, "No, no, no, you're unique." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of me wonders, though, is he unique in this situation or, because, or is he
2: just telling, or, him or is he out. just
0: telling? Him, but because he does become his sidekick, and he's never had a sidekick before. Oh, and so well, part of me wondered, like, was he actually a unique character to him, or is he just telling him that?
1: I took it, and I'm, I thought it was how it was meant to be taken. Yeah. It could be that way. I took it as like, oh, no, that was just him being a nice guy. Yeah. All right. I've just told you there is no Santa Claus. All right. But I'm going to now. (laughs) Yeah, but. but I'm going to soften the (laughs) blow. (laughs) I'm going to soften the blow. Having. His name is Chris Kringle. (laughs) Yeah. Having said that, I do believe that he probably didn't have sidekicks in all the other ones. All right. You know, so that, that, you know, so they're, they're, uh, uh. There is a little gene splicing ambiguity, even when it comes to that as well.
2: There is one reference, one gag reference that is or kind of a running joke, which is him eating turnips. Oh, and or
1: well, or or, well, or some kind of root yeah, vegetable. Yeah, what was of some up with that? And oh, well, it's a, it's a metaphor for drugs, obviously. Okay. All right, you know, a uh, uh, part of the thing. It's uh, um, uh, if you ever watched uh, How I Met Your Mother. They couldn't have them smoke pot on the show, but they would Mm. have them eat these submarine sandwiches. (laughs) But they would talk about the submarine sandwiches as if they were smoking pot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they kind of do the same thing in Rustler's Rhapsody is like you dig up this root, all right, like a tree root or ginseng or Mm -hmm. some sort of root that's buried in the ground and you eat it and it's like, it's all psilocybiny and gets you all uh, 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 fucked up, but you know. But he's a uh, uh, so he, he can't drink. He can't do anything. He orders milk in these places, so he can't drink or anything. But he he eats the. He gets stoned eating the roots, <laughs> and he turns the, He turns the other characters onto the root. <laughs> but okay, the, the one of the great uh, cliches is when all the characters, uh, uh, all the subsidiary characters, just start showing up. At his campsite, all and
0: the he, women. Yeah,
1: well, the, even the even his sidekick is there, and he gets mad. He goes, "Look, this is my campsite. I'm the one that took all the little rocks and put them in a little circle." <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, Dad, did you catch that? The character Blackie is played by Jim Carter. You'll know him as Mister Carton, uh, Mister Carson in Downton Abbey. Oh yes um and also he's the chef in I love Downton yeah you love that's why uh, I brought it up he's also the chef in Nicholas Rogue's the witches well, which I love oh well,
1: by the way uh, other than the fact you could tell that Blackie was British I loved Blackie I, no
0: his character was part I was so sad when he died yeah well
1: apparently so was everybody else everybody else had this deep-seated love for I Blackie love, right? I love when
0: like the daughter uh, is, uh-huh. is like crying over Blackie and then her dad's like you knew him? Knew him? I'm the only one that knew him.
2: <laughs> he yeah. spoke deep to me. Yeah, I, I like how it slowly becomes revealed that Blackie is this really sensitive Lothario. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> this
1: very deep guy that the, the tough guy stuff was just, you know, uh, He's not was, only, a, was a shield. Was a shield of, of his true you even, feelings. You even yeah. start
2: wondering, like, not only was he sleeping with the daughter or romancing the daughter at the very least, uh, but he but, may have also been sleeping with Andy Griffith, he her, he her father. He might have been, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he kind of laments over he him knew, also. Knew I knew him, I. him in ways that nobody else he knew. knew. Yes,
1: he, he knew how to love. He he knew how to feel. He <laughs> knew how to touch. <laughs> <laughs> and also, what is like actually, I, the whole movie works. All right, uh, I, I actually, I, I was curious to see if I thought it would fall apart in the the, the second act, and it does not fall apart. Having said that, though. That first 20 minutes is so terrific. Leading the beginning, up, yeah. Leading up to the end of Blackie, all right? That whole opening 15, 20 minutes is just so fucking solid. It's so good. And it doesn't lose any of its charm during the rest of it, but then it ga- starts gathering up the way the first part did once Patrick Wayne comes into it. Because it has such a real, it's a killer third act.
2: Patrick Wayne is uh, comes in just when you need him. Yeah, And, yeah. and he's refreshing in a really cool way. Mm-hmm. I... I loved the movie. I was totally with this film. I love the mashup. I love all of the the conundrums I, that that he's having. I like his his kind of self awareness that he's yeah, undergoing. Yeah. That he's having this realization about
1: the whole world and yeah. and what is reality. He's not aware that he's a cinema character. He does not know what movies is. Cinema has not been invented as far as he's concerned. It's just the same scenarios that he's able, that that he's forced to act out. But he doesn't. He's a a little
2: confused by the whole situation as well. But
1: but he's not, you know, he's not like a, a Chuck Jones cartoon character who knows he's a cartoon character and all of a sudden starts talking to the animators. He's not that aware. He's just aware enough to know that he's stuck in this loop of perpetuality.
0: There are several really great one-liners, specifically in, like, that opening 20 minutes. Um, Like, when Blackie, like, they roll into the saloon, and there's that guy, and he goes, you can kill me if you want, but this is the exact thing that drives down real estate prices. And they go, pow, 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 and he just kills him. And then the sidekick goes, or the town drunk at the time goes, that was the town doctor. And he goes, you're kidding. He's like, yep, I am just some real estate guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, no, just some real estate I thought, guy. Yeah. Real estate guy. <laughs> I thought that was really I, funny.
1: Oh, when they're standing, when they're having their showdown together, him and Blackie, which really also works in an action-y way. Yeah. Because oh, they're back and forth. No, that's, very, a, that's
2: a great showdown that they have. That whole bar sequence yeah, yeah. is fantastic.
1: And when he says, like, he goes, okay, Blackie, you don't do it. I'm going to take out my gutter and I'm going to shoot you in the hand. You're going to shoot me in the hand? <laughs> Yes, I'm going to shoot you in the hand. Why the hand? Because <laughs> I'm a good guy. That's where you shoot. Not the head. Not the heart. Not the face. Just the hand. Yeah, just the hand. I don't think I much like the idea of a shot in the hand. <laughs> That guy is great. <laughs> the, just hearing you redo him it, it, it is
2: reminding me of how fantastic how good it was. Was. <laughs> and how sad I was when he was taken from yeah, the I movie. Know. Jim Carson.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It literally it, Carter. It,
2: <laughs> the the movie takes a tiny little dip.
1: I, 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 I'm telling you, when that back and forth between Rex and Blackie started happening at the village, like the whole theater was electric. Yeah. Like, wow, this is a really. We weren't expecting a good Western scene in this movie. <laughs> So I have a rare positive review of Rustler's Rhapsody because, uh, like most audiences, most critics didn't really get it or understand it. But one of the good reviews that it did get was from Michael Ventura, who was uh, the uh, uh, head critic at the um, L.A. Weekly. But And he was one of my favorite critics at that time. He was very leftist uh hippie.
2: Yeah, that was a very reliable publication. Yeah, for it was me, very... Uh, I, I always knew that I, would, I was kind of in line for the most part with LA Weekly.
1: thing about uh, Michael Ventura, though, is um, as opposed to all the other guys that worked there, like FX Feeney and whatever, who had to just review one thing after another after another. Michael Ventura uh, usually picked the picks of the week and he pretty much only wrote about what he decided he wanted to write about. And so it was almost always positive uh, unless he particularly hated something. <laughs> Uh, So this is a positive one, and he wrote a very interesting review. All right. uh, So this is for uh, his pick of the week for Rustler's Rhapsody. Viewer, be warned. Reactions to Rustler's Rhapsody's spoof Western tend to be extreme. Some people, like me, think that it's the funniest studio picture so far this year. And some people, like my wife, find it generally weird that anybody, especially me, should think such a (laughs) flat, slow misfire has a laugh in it. Curious, though not scholarly research, a phone survey of friends, shows reactions split right down the middle and by sexes. Men, especially men pushing 40, tend to find it hilarious. Women and children tend to find it at best amusing. My theory is that women and children... We're not raised in the shadow of John Wayne and the other charismatic cowboys who taught us that the only way to be a man was to be a good guy, and the only way to be a good guy was to ride into town alone, seek out injustice, shoot the bejesus out of everybody in a black hat, and ride out alone, preferably into a sunset. A fantasy that, on a deeper level than we'd like to admit, we took seriously. So when Hugh Wilson's Rustler's Rhapsody comes along and makes fun fun of this paradigm, our laughter is the laughter of people who have needed to laugh at this stuff for a long time. We intellectualized it away, we felt superior to it, we've transcended it and liberated ourselves from it, and that's all well and good. But this is the first time some of us has had a chance to truly laugh at it, and with it, in praise of it and pity of it, but laugh. Tom Berenger's virgin hero and his supporting cast do a masterful deadpan job. Jose Luis Arcane's photography would have pleased John Ford. And Hugh Wilson, whose police academy I found unwatchable, directs his own script with what used to be called aplomb. Compared to the high satiric style of Rustler's Rhapsody, Blazing Saddles looks like kids playing in a sandbox.
2: Well, That is a really insightful review, actually. Yeah. That's uh
1: You did a good job with that.
2: Yeah, he... he, he- he got the movie. He got it.
1: He did what a good critic is supposed to do. He understood the film uh, and then was able to uh, explain it back. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, what I think the closest equivalent since this movie, uh, and this is not as me tooting my own horn, it's definitely a case of us doing a jump off of something that nobody had understanding what we were doing, is it's very similar to uh, Grindhouse.
2: Yeah, for you know? sure.
1: Yeah. Me and. Robert, you know, did this thing. And it was a good tribute to 70s Grindhouse movies. And then the majority of the audience went inside opening weekend. What the fuck is this shit? They didn't. They, <laughs> Why they, is they, it so scratched up? Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they didn't even know that there was another movie playing. I mean, they just, it was like it, we took them into a world that they they, they didn't have enough knowledge. Right? Yeah, I saw. I saw this is th- actually more successful than that because, well, I don't think ours worked as. Ours doesn't have to work as a complete parody like theirs does.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the movie wor- works absolutely well as uh, an audience driven. Big studio Paramount comedy. Mm-hmm. It's I, funny. It's it, funny on it for general audiences. It's hilarious. Absolutely. But but it's also for film nerds. Yeah, no, who,
1: it absolutely.
2: I mean, it's great that Paramount, who made all of those westerns, mm-hmm. it seems, are mm-hmm. the ones yeah. that uh, made this movie.
0: So I watched mine on iTunes. It was a beautiful transfer that I rented, but I was able to pick up a VHS of this. It is a Paramount Home Video. It's the same one that was at Video Archives Tape. I picked mine up off of eBay for $3.79. $3.79.
1: Wow, that's a good price it out is. there.
0: Quentin, what tape number is that from Video Archives? Uh,
1: 3495.
0: 3495, what a good number.
1: Yes, and actually there's a little dash which suggests that we had had uh, multiple copies at one point.
2: I just want to say that when we viewed this movie, Tim Cook didn't get anything. Yeah. <laughs> when you watched and it, so he got, God, he got like 30%. So
1: <laughs> ours was the better screen.
0: <laughs> I can guarantee that. <laughs>
2: And we're back. Yes, we are. And we're back with a movie that uh, I'm super excited to me, talk about. Me too. Because this one has never been on my radar. I'd never heard of it.
1: I know we've shown some obscure movies on, uh, on this show. I, 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 I dare say that this is one of the most, if not the most, obscure. I came across a review for it in Psychotronic Magazine. Because, you know, uh, uh, Michael Weldon reviews everything. <laughs> And in the Psychotronic review, he goes, well, this is a crazy little number. It's basically, uh, more or less, uh, it's a Star Wars spoof starring a guy who's doing a Jack Benny impersonation. So it's a weird sci-fi spoof mixed up with Jack Jack Benny Benny of all things. (laughs) Of all things, Jack Benny mythology. So like basically, okay. The character of Jet Benny, basically playing the Han Solo character, uh, and even the princess, even had a uh, Princess Miranda. All right, you know, she's a little bit like Mary Livingston, his wife from yeah. the show. Uh, he's got a black android <laughs> called Rochester, and his spaceship is called the Maxwell, which is a joke on like the 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 the, the shitty, the terrible shitty car that uh, Jack Benny would always drive everywhere. That sounds insane. That sounds absolutely preposterous. So I thought, well, that sounds weird. And then I never really thought about the movie again. And then it just so happens uh, that uh, two weeks ago, I was in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I was doing an event at the Hollywood Theater. It's a great theater in, in, in Portland. And I was told uh, about that they have a video store There, that's a massive, massive, huge video store called Movie Madness. And so they, hey, you got to go down and visit Movie Madness. So I go down and I visit Movie Madness and they have tons of things. And so I'm looking through the video store and I don't know why this popped into my head. Like a beacon, it called to you. I just don't know why it popped into my head. But for whatever stupid reason, as I'm going through stuff, all of a sudden the Jet Benny show popped in my head. Well, let me see if they have that. Then I went into the cult section and I looked under J, and there was the Jet Benny show. I go to the counter and I go, can I buy this? And They go, well, no, you can't buy it. I mean, we don't, you know, our, our collection is our collection. We're really precious about our collection. Look, I'll rent it to you, and you can send it back in a year from now. We don't care, but we can't sell you the tape. Oh, we can rent it to you, and you just get it back to us as soon as you can. So I go, okay. And so I, I, I got it, and I brought it home, and I told you guys about it. Everyone was intrigued by, at least by its bizarreness, and we sat down to watch it. I was as charmed by this movie as any movie we've watched since we did the show i'm not saying it's the best movie that we've watched since we've done the show but i was so i was so incredibly charmed by every aspect of it by every crew member who worked on it and it was the movie that 5 days after we did it i thought about this movie every day for those 5 days not about like great scenes from it but just that it existed and just the fact that this exists and that it was so lovingly done, and the lead guy, Steve Norman, who plays Jet Benny, has been in my i i do him now. Yeah. I impersonate. You I don't impersonate do, I don't, Steve do Jack ben, I don't. I don't yeah. do Jack Benny. I do Steve Norman doing Jack yeah. Benny. <laughs> One of the things we didn't know, but I think we figured out while we we're watching the movie we're pretty positive this is made on Super 8.
2: It sure feels like Super 8 to yeah, me. In yeah. fact... Uh,
1: and it looks like it's made out of Texas. That's, where we, that's The only we, thing we could figure out from the film is it looked like it's made out of Texas. Yeah, at first
2: I was thinking, is this California? And then suddenly it became apparent this is Texas.
1: Yeah, and it's you know, and it's pretty obvious that it's made on Super 8. And if it's made... This is absolutely the best Super 8 feature I've ever seen. Absolutely. And there was a time
2: when no, no, Super seen, 8 I've
1: features seen some, would, I've seen some okay Super 8 features. None of them as good as this. yeah
2: first of all, the box looks like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a spoof of Star Wars. Yeah, You've yeah. got the Jet Benny character uh, with a something like a lightsaber. Um, Polly McIntyre is Princess Miranda is mm-hmm. there at his side, like Princess Leia. They've got their Jet Benny show logo <laughs> that looks like the Star Wars logo. You've thrilled to the adventures of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Now prepare yourself for Jet Benny. A super spoof of the not too distant future. Winner of the Lawrence Kasdan Award 1986 Ann Arbor Film Festival.
1: You sound like Eli Roth's voice when he does this, this Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that was sort of a Thanksgiving. <laughs> Eli can call me if he ever needs me again. White, white meat, dark meat, all will be carved. <laughs> that was really good.
0: That was, good. That was really good.
2: It's a United Home video box. In the distant future, stand the remains of a civilization on the brink of destruction the city of Altamira. The power hungry Lord Zane wants to complete his world empire with the addition of this ancient, noble citadel. His plan? Kidnap the heirs to the throne of Altamira and take control.
1: Princess Miranda and Prince Carmen. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The only thing that could possibly prevent the city's D Day climactic future is a man from its grade B cinematic past. With the help of his faithful co pilot, Rochester, Jet Benny leaps into a persimmonious action to do battle with Zane and his cronies. But did you write the back of this box?
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> the kind sure of said. adjective you just gotta kind of slip into yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs>
2: What, you don't know what (laughs) parsimonious
1: means?
2: (laughs) The spirit of the 40s meets the pseudo technology of the 80s. Never have so few done so much for so many, or so little. (laughs)
1: joke I've ever heard of the back of a video box in my life. And your reading of it was terrific. You didn't know it was the joke until you got to the end of I it. I played it straight. You <laughs> figured it out. I figured it, it out. La- landed the ending. <laughs> if Jack Benny were alive,
2: he would have wanted it this way. <laughs> 77 Minutes, Color,
1: 1988, Comedy Adventure. Here's the thing is, I'm not ridiculously crazy knowledgeable about the the Jack Benny TV show i know that it exists but it kind of stopped being in rotation, you know, about, you know. I, I uh, used
2: to watch it when I was when I was very young. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I'd seen it a few times, you know, in the early 70s when I was a little boy uh, on reruns. But what would happen is, but it was pretty much out of rotation, I guess, by the time I was 10. But what would happen is uh, KTLA Channel 5 out here in Los Angeles would have a Jack Benny week every year or every other year. for So for that whole week, instead of having the Channel 5 movie theater, they would just show like four episodes of uh, the Jack Benny show. So it would take it over for a week. And I, I watched some of those, some of those weeks, you know, uh, because I thought it was a pretty funny show. But I mean, little, I don't think I'd seen it since then, since I was a little boy mm-hmm. on one of those Channel 5. Yeah, and then
2: I come over to your house and you're like, hey, let's watch a Jack Benny episode. I'm like, what?
1: Yeah, so the thing <laughs> is, I thought, well, I, ha- I have a bunch of them because I, Eddie Brands had a bunch of them. So I decided to watch a couple. And so I'm watching, wow, these are really funny. And I found myself-
2: it was like a modern Gary Shandling yeah, or well,
1: Larry David. Well, it's definitely that. But I found or, myself laughing out loud in a way that I don't, I enjoy watching older sitcoms. But I'm more like thinking, "Hey, that's funny," rather than me laughing out loud. I was actually laughing out loud, and not even at the most obvious jokes. And so, well, then, it's a whole
2: world. The whole it's, it's a, a it's it's whole world. The world he creates.
1: So then he so you come over and he's got all these characters and he's got all these like little trademarks. And so we watch a couple of episodes of the Jack Benny Show before we start watching the Jet Benny movie. Since then, I've watched like 20 episodes of Jack (laughs) Betty. And every time Roger comes over, I make him watch at least two more. (laughs) Uh, uh, um, So we decided, okay, look, we're not going to really try to look up these guys. We don't... We know the director's name is Roger D. Evans. Okay, We're not going to look up exactly what they did afterwards or what Steve Norman did afterwards, if he did anything afterwards. We didn't kind of want to know. We just wanted to—we're going to we're gonna leave that up to you. If you guys want to do any kind of research, go ahead. We just wanted to just have it exist in this time. Now, with us not knowing anything and not doing any research, the only— they, so we have cinema speculation on, on, on our hands. So we can only speculate what the situation is. So we're speculating that it, that it was shot in Texas. Yes. Now, when it comes to the origin of this, my guess is this. If I had to guess, I am guessing that that somewhere in Texas, there was some sort of coffee house or comedy club that existed. And this guy, Steve Norman would come in and do a Jack Benny takeoff. He would
2: do a whole Jack Benny review. Yeah,
1: he would do a whole Jack Benny takeoff done exactly like, the Jack Benny show, which by the way, the Jack Benny show, uh, Jack Benny would come out and there'd be a curtain behind him and he'd talk to his audience. And then, you know, he would either set up a story that you would see play out or they would do a sketch, but he was always started off talking to his audience and maybe he'd bring out the guest who was going to be the guest star on the show. Oh, and here's Peter Lorick, come up here, Peter, you know, uh, uh-uh. uh, and then they would talk to the audience and then they would start their sketch. Well, the Jet Benny show starts exactly like that. It starts like black and white kinescope and Jet Benny comes pr- out there. And pretty
2: good kinescope. Oh. I, thought, I thought it was actually Jack Benny when it first started.
1: It was a little boggling at first because it was so much like the show we had watched. The opening was so exactly correct. It was yeah, almost disconcerting.
2: Well, Polly McIntyre, uh-huh. who plays... Princess Miranda, when yeah, she comes out yeah, uh, yeah. as uh, uh,
1: for some '50s actress, Polly, yeah, yeah,
2: and, and the way she kind of comes out and does her little like kind yeah. of uh, greeting to the audience, to the TV audience mm. at home, and then kind of runs yeah, off yeah, camera uh, to get yeah. ready for the skit, yeah, she was so selling the time period, I couldn't understand it oh. when I real when you explained to me afterwards, no, no, no that's. That's the guy play. That's Jet Benny. Yeah, yeah. That's not Jack Benny. We're. This is actually not old footage. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, no. Understand. Yeah. So understand. Which for a little movie, again, that's the, a that's a great thing to pull well, off. The, premi- the The bizarre premise of this show is not only does it not take place in the time of Star Wars, it doesn't even take place in the 80s. It takes place in 1959. The Jet Benny Show is being recorded in 1959. This is just their version of science fiction. Now, when you watch the Jack Benny Show, you realize that many episodes are Jack coming out there and, and talking to the audience. Oh, we're going to do a, a, a private detective A a sketch today. Oh, we're going to do a Western sketch today. Oh, we're going to do a gangster sketch today. And then all of a sudden the play opens and then they do a a gangster sketch or they do a Desperate Hours takeoff or something. Well, this is just their version of that. It's just we're doing a science fiction takeoff. What I suspect happened is some, uh, either a little comedy theater in Texas or some little coffee house in Texas. This guy, Steve Norman, this Jack Benny impersonator, started doing his own live version of a of a Jack Benny show, uh, probably every Friday or every Sunday or every Wednesday. Not too dissimilar from uh, uh, the Soloway sisters when they used to do the real live Brady Bunch, mm-hmm. where they would go on stage and just take scripts from the Brady Bunch and act them out on on stage. I'm guessing. That this was probably their most successful sketch.
2: They might have done mashups, and stuff. Yeah.
1: they might have done a really, they might have done a, a funny Star Wars sketch with with Jack Benny, and then they they'd been doing it for a while, and then they decide, hey, let's try to raise up the money to make a movie. One of the things that's that uh, if you know if you know who Jack Benny is and you understand the lineage uh, behind him and like the different tropes and 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 stuff that he's known for. The movie starts, uh, once it gets into its science fiction story, it starts so strongly because when it cuts to the Maxwell, the spaceship, you see Jack Benny there alone playing his violin, which is an important part of the Jack Benny persona. The important part of the Jack Benny persona was that he loved to play his violin, but he didn't play it very well. (laughs) (laughs) And you see the guy just you know he's the Maxwell is a gigantic like Nostromo's yeah. kind of ship, but there's only two people on it. There's there's Jet Benny and then there's Rochester. You know who's uh, usually at the controls driving it, and so he's on this gigantic <laughs> Nostromo's like Maxwell, and he's just walking down the hall playing his violin. It's the first time we see him. We see him from behind, and it's just if you know anything about Jack Benny, it captures the persona. Perfectly, but there's also this kind of melancholy uh, 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 resonance about a guy playing a violin badly, uh, but not done for comic purposes. They play Uh, it straight. Yeah, they play it very straight. It's 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 it's
2: loving. It's a loving tribute in that moment. It
1: it lets you know right away you're in good hands because it just starts the film off about Jack Benny in just the right tone. The actor we're talking about is name. His name is Steve Norman. He's the one who plays uh, Jet Benny, and he's doing a, a Jack Benny impersonation throughout the whole movie. He's fucking sensational. Yeah, I mean, this guy is terrific. What he does that's really special is, like, figure if he's a Jack Benny impersonator, he's probably going to be good impersonating Jack Benny, and he's excellent <laughs> impersonating Jack Benny. I mean, to such a degree that at a certain point. I forgot that I'm not watching... It could have been Jack Benny. I, I forget I'm watching Steve Norman. I start thinking I'm watching Jack Benny. But what's really special is, you know, a strange way, in that same vein that we're talking about uh, uh, Young Frankenstein, he's not just a disposable joke. I liked his character of Jet Benny. And not only that, not only is he very funny doing Jack Benny... It almost stops being super funny because he just makes it natural. To Jet Benny, he's playing it straight. Oh, yeah, exactly. He's he's absolutely playing it straight. He's being true to, to, to the Benny character. But what's weird is he's a good enough actor that he's actually able to carry the dramatic storytelling part of the movie. You actually care about what happens. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, It's one thing to be funny. It's one thing to be odd. It's another thing to take the narrative and put it on your shoulders and drive that narrative all the way home to the end of a 90-minute movie. And he does that. Steve Norman does that. He does it wonderfully. He carries the movie. He carries the movie. He tells the story. He's a narrative actor. He's not just lurching from funny bit to funny bit. Today, you were
2: doing like a Jack Benny impersonation. Mm-hmm. And I kind of realized as you were doing it, it's not that there's any individual funny joke. Mm-hmm. It's literally the road he takes
1: to telling you anything. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the securitist path. It's his that he goes on. His. His verbiage creates a humorous kind of thing. By constantly
2: throwing in, you see. Yeah.
1: (laughs) By just, by throwing in all this little extra stuff as he's describing things. The little extra stuff isn't funny, but it creates the rhythm that it becomes funny. The other actors in the piece are really, really strong. It actually has, of all the Super 8 movies I've ever seen, it has the strongest cast. It's almost
2: like a a, like a like a troop.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, the bad guy is like is is a legit good actor. He's able to pull off his, his his bad guy lines really good. Uh, the girl who's playing the Princess Leia character, like yeah, Polly McIntyre, yeah, like Mary, uh, Mary Livingston, is very because it's uh, be hard to actually impersonate Mary Livingston, and she doesn't impersonate her, but she suggests her in a strange <laughs> way.
2: Yeah, Ted Leitman as yeah. Commander Shades.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, Commander Shades is fantastic. But oh, but what, what I've been waiting for you to talk about Roger. Is I want you to take the ball and run with it. Is just talk about how the true cleverness and the special effects that they use.
2: Well, you know, it's it's beyond cleverness. It's beyond cleverness. Um, this guy, Roger Evans, brings a kind of handmade quality, a loving handmade quality in the way that um our pal Dan O'Bannon yeah. brings to Dark Star. And I think you even mentioned at one point, God, this is like Dark Star in that it's this little, tiny, mm-hmm. unlikely movie yeah, yeah. that's hand put together you know, just with what they have available around them, the locations they have and the equipment they have and the actors that they it have. It definitely
1: sits on a shelf located next to things like Dark Star, Evil Dead.
2: I can see Roger Evans in his dorm room probably yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, doing these optical effects, uh, which are absolutely like Gilliam-esque, yeah. wonderful 70s style imagery. Well, it's
1: K- 80s K- style. K- but yeah, 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 yeah.
2: And, you know, and crafting that stuff just the same way that Dan O'Bannon did.
1: Okay, now, is it as good a movie at the end of the day as Dark Star?
2: No, no.
1: Is it as good a movie at the end of the day as Evil Dead? No. All right, but children shouldn't play with dead things. Yeah. It's as good as that, and that's a good movie. Yeah. That's a good movie. another handmade film. Uh-huh. Another handmade film. So so it's in that category. You know, uh, actually, when it comes to other Super A classics, the movie that I think it's as good as, and it's a good movie and a terrific, super, the best Super 8 movie until I saw this of all time is Todd Haynes' uh, character, oh, yeah. a superstar. Superstar, the, the Karen, Karen Carpenter. Carpenter yeah. And it's very similar to that because in both cases, you think you're going to watch that movie the first time you put it on. You thought you're going to watch it for 15 minutes and you and, think, until and, the
2: gimmick and, run out. And you think it's just going to be a gimmick and then you realize, yeah. no, he actually, that's what he had to make the yeah. movie with.
1: And, and in both cases, the gimmick lives beyond the movie and you're actually, again, it's probably part of the reason you like the movie so much. It's like, oh, you weren't quite expecting it to hold together that way.
2: What I really <laughs> compare this to and it's because when I was young in mm-hmm. the 1970s and early 1980s, I would go to sci-fi conventions. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, WonderCon, I think is what it was back, back yeah. when, or it was something like that. There, there was this convention that would come through town and it would be at the airport, the LA airport, one of those mm-hmm. uh, hotels there. they would take over a couple of ballrooms. The rooms. International
1: Hotel or something. Everybody
2: yeah, would come in sort of their 1970s version of cosplay yeah, you know, yeah, back yeah. then. And uh, you dress up as like science fiction characters and stuff like that. And invariably, there would be different programs. There would be, you know, the, the floor that you go to to get things signed and to mm. buy stuff. And then there would be um, a program where, you know, they've got uh, Rob Bottin coming in. And yeah. he's going to – maybe not Rob Bottin. Herbert
1: Jefferson that. Jr., the black guy from uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica yeah. is there signing autographs. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> not he, Dirk Benedict, Herbert Jefferson yeah, exactly. Jr. <laughs> you'd, you'd
2: exactly. You'd get a couple of those and people talking, you know, yeah. a, a, on stage. And then invariably at every one of these, they would show a movie called Hardware Wars. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hardware Wars was uh, made by a young filmmaker named Ernie Fasellis, who began taking the title... Ernie Ford Fussellis. And he did a little logo just like Francis well, Ford for Coppola.
1: Por- for for now, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so he would uh, he would make these movies on Super 8, which were spoofs, parodies. Yeah. And his big one was Hardware Wars, yeah. which was like this little Super 8. It's, it's hysterical. Hysterical
1: short, basically, uh, you know, just put together like J- Jet Benny. Literally one of my favorite lines in any spoof ever is like, but the planet basketball is a peaceful planet. <laughs> like their Darth Vader. is just... <laughs> the planet basketball is a peaceful
2: <laughs> And then after that, he did Pork Lips Now, which was his uh, Apocalypse, Apocalypse now. Now, starring, now version.
1: Starring Billy Gray from uh, Bud from uh, uh, Father Knows Best.
2: And so Ernie Ford Faselis became like a kind of he was like well, Super, okay. Super 8 Filmmaker Magazine We you would have spreads on him. It became to his the, little
1: to, empire. To Roger and Scott, who are, you know, the empresarios <laughs> of Super 8 Filmmaking of the South Bay, I mean, he might as well be Ernie Ford (laughs) Phacelus. He was. He earned the title.
2: He earned the title. So Jet Benny has that same kind of quality, except it's a
1: feature. Except it's a feature and it holds up.
2: And so as I was watching it, I was like, okay, I'm detecting that a lot of this is post-sync sound. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's all post-sync sound.
2: Yeah, that they've dubbed it. And so I'm thinking this is Super 8 because it does have a rough, quality to it. I mean, yeah. it could be, it, this easily could have been I mean, 16, to, but as to, I'm watching it, I'm, I'm a pretty good detective when it comes yeah. to stuff like this.
1: I, I'm positive. Uh, uh, and the uh,
2: fact that it was, wasn't sync was a real yeah. kind of giveaway because that was, that's like a problem And the when, fact you're, when that, you're shooting on And Super the 8. fact
1: that Steve Norman is able to post sync his entire performance and be as funny as he is. And props to Roger Evans, who makes the most of what he has. And you know,
2: just when I think that the movie doesn't have an, any visual pizzazz, suddenly those crazy animations of that guy flying around on that little Fantastic. jet car thing or yeah, whatever yeah, it is yeah, that yeah, he's yeah, got. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's as good as anything I've seen in yeah. any low budget movie. its I love it. That moment was so
1: Roger. All
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's got this graphic 70s <laughs> graphism quality to it. Suffice it to say, this is a magnificent movie, a magnificent, low-budget production that, if you're going to watch it, you should probably check out a few episodes yeah. of Jack Benny.
1: Yeah, watch watch a couple of episodes of Jack Benny. Even if
2: you're not going to watch it, you should actually watch a few episodes of yeah, Jack yeah, Benny. Yeah, exactly.
1: If, you, if Jack Benny's just a name to you, then you should definitely watch about two or three episodes of uh, his TV show. They're only a half hour, 20 minutes, 22 minutes or something. Watch about three of them before you watch the Jet Benny show. We have completely oversold the Jet Benny show. I'm totally fine with that because it's just uh it's a byproduct of our affection for it because it's it it's like it's it's just rare for me to have this much affection for something just to come whamming me out of the fucking blue like this does.
2: Well, it's not like anybody's Currently championing this movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's for sure. (laughs) So I think it's okay to oversell it because it's been undersold up till now. So Gala, it's pretty rare for you to watch a movie with us. How was that?
0: You know, actually... It's not that rare to watch a movie with you guys since after recording every time we go downstairs and we watch a VHS, but it is rare for us to talk about it on the show. So Mm -hmm. I was really excited because we watched this on VHS together and Quentin so graciously played me a few episodes of The Jack Benny Show before because I had never even heard of him, Mm -hmm. to be honest. I don't watch that kind of TV that's not really like my wheelhouse and it's really funny. <laughs> it's like Larry David. Like, yeah, yeah, honestly, like, if you like... It's like, like Curb Your Enthusiasm you in like, the 50s, If yeah. you like Curb Your Enthusiasm and you're wanting more, mm-hmm. like, just go watch The Jack Money if Show. You and, he's, like, and he's
1: just as much of an asshole, all right, you know, in yeah. social circumstances he, he's as... He's just
2: as cheap. Yeah, he's,
1: he's just as cheap, just as problematic in his own <laughs> navigation of he social lived, order. And he lives
2: in a kind of Hollywood reality oh, where yeah, all yeah. the stars are living in his neighborhood, and oh, yeah, so they're, yeah, yeah. they're walking in and out.
1: <laughs>
0: but. Uh, like the guys said, no research on this. They talked a little bit about the United Home video and – you guys know it was Dark Star. That oh. was our other United Home video, which- Well,
1: that actually makes a lot a, of sense. If it had been a snake, it would have bitten us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love on this box that who is it behind them? None other than Commander Shades. <laughs> yeah. he's, like he's the, the big, Darth Vader. He's, he's the Darth, Darth Vader. He's the Darth Vader, yeah. It's not, uh, what's his name? It's not Lord Zane. It is Commander Shades as the Darth Vader. The only downfall of the movie for me is- Prince Carmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Richard Sable playing Carmen. I didn't care for, I,
1: for a Super 8 movie, he's not too terrible. But, but he's everyone the le- else is so good. He's the, le- he's, the least, he's the least. He's the least. But for most Super 8 features, he's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we
2: talk for a moment on like how incredibly violent Rochester? The, okay. They-
0: okay, we have to set up who Rochester is though in the show, yeah, for okay. those of you who haven't seen it, and then who he is in the movie. Okay.
1: Literally almost like. The closest thing to Jack Benny had to a true partner was Eddie Rochester Anderson. Rochester was his basically his valet, and uh, uh, Jack Benny was a terrible boss. <laughs> <laughs> he was completely cheap. Uh, Rochester is usually uh, gets the the zinger, yeah. all right, and yeah. most of their exchanges together, you know, and like and one of his. Uh, uh, Jack Benny had many famous things that he would say that were catchphrases. But you know, when you if I'm just gonna do Jack Benny out of the blue, I'm just going go, oh Rochester. You know, and then Rochester comes out there. You know. <laughs> and
0: by the way, when Quentin just did that, he's doing Jet Benny's voice. I hear Jet <laughs> Benny when I close yeah. my eyes.
1: I would actually say the least successful thing that they do in this movie is their handling of Rochester. So in it, Rochester is is he's kind of the the Chewbacca character. Yeah.
2: He's or the C3PO, sort yeah, of a combine.
1: Combine between the two of them.
0: And he, here he is on the box, by the way, peeking up at uh, the oh, there very it, bottom. Yeah. yeah.
1: He's his uh he's an android. He's an android that uh flies the Maxwell, all right, with uh Jet Benny and he does all of his stuff. He's a crazy looking, looks like a a, a weird space age teddy bear, <laughs> all right, the way he's designed. And then they give him a cliched uh uh Mr. Bones, you know, <laughs> kind of voice. They could have done more. It could have been cleverer. Also, it's a little strange that they're so right on about everything, about the Jack Benny show. uh, And they do a generic Mr. Bones black dialect from the 40s where actually Rochester didn't have that dialect. He had a very specific dialect. Yeah, yes, Mr. Benny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he had a very particular sound. It's strange that they didn't try to, to impersonate the real Rochester rather than a generic voice. They don't do enough with him. But the thing that they do do.
0: <laughs> yeah, here it comes.
1: That is kind of amazing. <laughs> is at some point, so you just figure he's just the android manservant, you know? Uh, but then at some point the bad guys get Rochester and it turns out it's fairly very easy to turn Rochester into the, the world's killer robot of all time. <laughs> and so he's just this executioning killing machine and so the bad guy is using Rochester to wipe out the rebels and so the rebels think of Rochester as if you know he's the angel of death You know, uh, and it's been
0: for like the past like how his money is it like seven years or something that yeah, since exactly. Yeah. crashed a, yeah, on yeah, the planet? yeah
1: exactly yeah, he, he doesn't know that seven years he, we don't re- feel seven years has passed but uh, it did pass for Jeb Betty and then you realize for seven years Rochester has been, you know, slowly
2: becoming this like uh, the
1: evil iron giant yeah. all right <laughs> through the whole thing they have something at the end where they they get to a cave And they're like, what are all these dead bodies Because <laughs> it's like nothing with dead bodies like Oh, Rochester came in here and killed all these people. <laughs> so it's just the idea. I don't I don't think that I, I don't like how they pulled off Rochester at the end because I think they could have done a better job. But the idea that Rochester is the death merchant machine android of all time is kind of funny.
0: <laughs> Roger, you talked a little bit about the effects in this movie, but like. As Quentin says, the the bad guys take a hold of Rochester, and they've rewired him, and so he's taken hold of Princess Miranda mm-hmm. and captured her with Lord Zane, and then Rochester is like, well, Jet Benny first hears her and like comes to her rescue with this cape. Yeah, yeah, he's wearing this crazy black cape no, the entire time. It's amazing
1: that he's able to do such a dexterous performance with this incredibly cumbersome, long cape hanging off of his back the entire length of the movie.
0: (laughs) So he comes down and he sees Rochester is, like, attacking Princess Miranda. And he's like, you have to stop. And then Rochester turns on him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, come on, stop it.
1: Yeah. Rochester, stop. Rochester, (laughs) stop. Rochester, (laughs)
0: enough. (laughs) And so Jet Benny. Rochester, get a hold
1: of yourself. I
0: love that. There's like... Come on now. <laughs> and the effects that they use in that sequence both with Jet Benny's like laser gun mm-hmm. and also like the Rochester vision whoa, 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 that they whoa, whoa, use. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the Rochester vision is wild. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but how did, like, how do you think that he, like, achieved it? Like, was he, like, scratching on the film or, yes. like? Yes, yeah.
2: yes. So what he's doing, this is likely shot.
1: Fle- uh, uh, Flesh Gordon would do those effects with the power yeah. pasties and by- right, that Dr. Zarkoff would have. They would be to scratch the film. And by for the, the way, <laughs> there, there were
2: moments in this where I was like, okay, that's as good an effect as any modern effect. Yeah, and yeah, people yeah, yeah. wished that There was a
1: couple that. of effects that were that way, yeah. And
2: there was, uh, I mean, it's quite likely this movie was shot, you know, positive as negative. Like, yeah, they yeah, shot, yeah. like, uh, you know print film to uh, instead of negative film just to save money or it's possible they just shot it directly. If it was on 16 or more than likely it's super eight. Okay. So mm-hmm. super eight is half the size. Actually it's less, the, the image size is half the size, even smaller than uh, 16 millimeter, which is itself half the size of 35 millimeter, mm-hmm. which most people know what 35 millimeter film, you know, the general size of it. Okay. It is tiny. It's the size of like, you know, a pen cap, for a filmmaker to sit there and scratch lasers,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah right on. laser
2: fire into super eight to scratch away the emulsion so that you get like a kind of burst of white <laughs> yeah, light yeah, yeah, coming yeah. through and then to animate it, to slowly animate it. Okay. It takes patience. Mm-hmm. It takes uh, skill. It takes somebody who understands the animation and Roger Evans clearly knows how to animate because not only is he doing the, those scratch uh, effects. Scratch effects. He's also doing optical printer effects. Yeah. I mean, or, anim- or at least rough animation. It's looking like optical printer mm-hmm. effects. It's impressive. And the uh, that Rochester vision, the the death beam yeah, there's or whatever. like There's
0: like two times, I think, that we see Rochester vision. One is when he's attacking Jet Benny. And then the other is in that really cool, at least I thought it was really cool, where Rochester is like, you you see this, what is it called? Altamira, which is like yeah. the city. And then you're seeing it through Rochester's eyes. And it's all this cool animation. And then all of a sudden it cuts to Rochester and he's looking. And then he slowly turns. And as you turn, you see that... Jet Benny is looking through the back oh, wow. of his head. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Okay,
2: that was that was I've amazing. never I've never I seen about, that. I forgot
1: about that. Yeah. Whoever
2: so whoever came up with that special gold star for you, my friend, because that was something I had never seen in my yeah, life. Yeah. The fact that he's, he's using you, his he, robot, using, like binoculars. Yeah,
1: he's using Rochester. He's looking through the back of Rochester's head using his eyes like a uh, uh, like a periscope in a uh, uh, submarine movie. You know, <laughs> or in a submarine when you're watching <laughs> as su- opposed to a submarine movie. When, when, <laughs>
2: <laughs> when you're a <The> submarine movie, <laughs> when you're watching science fiction, you kind of hope for like inventive ideas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was like as inventive an, as, an idea as we, I've ever seen in a science fiction movie.
1: Our asses leaped off the couch. All oh. right, when that happened because it, it 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 shocked us. Such a clever, such a clever uh, 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 image. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the other really cool like effect sequence is that scooter fight. There's, okay, so there's these <gasps> Oh scooters.
1: my God, yeah. I haven't even talked about
0: that. <laughs> okay, so to set this up really quick, you guys, there's Commander Shades. Yeah, Commander
2: and Shades. Commander and he Shades, flies around in this, like, chariot But, type like, thing.
0: multiples of him fly around in these <laughs> chariot, like, scooters. Yeah, apparently there's
1: armies of him. Yeah. It's, it's the same picture, but
2: duplicated, like, with Xerox. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> with color so Xerox. he's on this scooter,
0: and he's very menacing as he, like, flies through the air, and he's, like, I guess, Lord Zane's, like, commander. Mm. And so in the end... Him and Prince Carmen get into this scooter race battle.
1: It's a complete, almost shot for shot duplication of uh you know the 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 scooter chase through the trees and return of the jedi with it, the and Ewoks. every bit is
0: good. <laughs> but with <laughs> and, like Barbie dolls.
1: Yeah, including Barbie dolls uh, uh, uh matched up with the real guys flying through the air uh uh, uh flying amongst real trees and then uh these Barbie dolls attached to these little chariots that are fly through the air. It is so well done. It is so clever. It is so fun. Funny and it's also exciting. Yeah, when it's over, you're like, wow. Yeah, who would have thought yeah. a terrific little action scene like that? I mean, what the makes- Steven Spielberg who's who's in the Fablemans would have bowed his head. Absolutely, all right, at that 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 scooter
2: chase. What makes the speeder chase work in the Star Wars movie is the speed at yeah. which it's moving, and mm-hmm. they have that in this. They have you are jamming through that forest.
1: It's fantastic. You are zooming you through. You can tell how they did every effect. But not only does it not ruin the effect, you're blown away by their ingenuity.
0: Steve Norman's mannerisms have stayed with me, and he has this one line where he actually breaks the fourth wall.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, where? Yes. When he
0: does the mind control on the guards. Uh-huh. And then afterwards Rochester asks him how did you do that? I think it's Rochester that asks mm-hmm. him. And he looks at the camera and he goes, I saw it in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that. It's the one, time, it's yeah, it's the yeah, one time, time where
2: they are self-aware that we're doing yeah. a And he still pulls it
0: off too. Yeah. I think this movie is like made for like a very specific kind of person. I don't think everyone's going to, like, run to go watch the Jack Benny show. But, like, I don't know. It's no, no. Only... It
1: seems like as if it's made for the people who made it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, literally. But, and and we're invited and we got it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the thing is, this movie's it's available on YouTube, and it's only 77 minutes long. Just put it on and have some fun. I mean, if you don't like it in the first 15 minutes, turn it off and who cares? Yeah. You miss out on a lot of but, funny things. But, but check yeah, out yeah, an episode
1: yeah. of Jack Benny first. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just watch one episode. And, you know, and by the way, where we're coming from, we're so charmed by this movie. If you don't like it, we don't give a fuck, all right? We liked it. <laughs> and we're not even saying you're going to. We're just saying that we appreciate this movie, and we appreciate Roger Evans, and we appreciate Steve Norman.
0: I picked up a United Home video VHS on eBay for $16. And by the way, Roger, there was one thing you didn't – I don't. did you read this on the back of the box, this picture caption?
2: I didn't know I had to read all the captions.
0: Well, Jet Benny, glasses, cape, and courage. The future's most unlikely hero. Just (laughs) out of his face. I just love it.
1: And by the way, if you happen to live in Portland, Oregon, you can rent the Jet Benny show at Movie Madness when I return their tape.
0: People are going to be lining up like, where's that tape, Quentin?
1: (laughs) Yeah, what they didn't tell you
2: when they rented it and they told you, oh, just keep it for as long as you like. They didn't tell you about the late fees, did they?
1: (laughs) (laughs) They conveniently forgot Okay, and now it's time for awards. Okay. It seems to me the uh, uh, two awards this episode that are going to be tough are best lead actor and best director, all right? Because all three of the movies are really, really well directed. And all three of the movies have uh, sensational lead performances. Uh, I'll start as far as best actor is concerned. Uh, Now, in the case of George C. Scott, we have a Academy Award winner and a previous Video Archives Best Actor winner for Rage. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. And I thought for ins- And
2: directing himself in that film. And
1: directing himself in that film. I thought that, uh, I was like, I can't believe I I wouldn't give it to George C. Scott in the last run because he's so terrific in it. And I thought after us talking about it, that for sure. But now that we've talked about the Jet Benny show again and had uh, filled it up, I'm going to give Best Actor to Steve Norman as Jack Benny. I'm not taking anything away from either Tom Berenger or George C. Scott, but while I have an opportunity to applaud Steve Norman for his magnificent impersonation of uh, Jack Benny, and not only that, just a good performance nevertheless in this story, uh, I'm giving it to my boy Steve. Roger. I'm with you.
2: Really? 100%. Wow. And I right. and I wasn't even humming and hawing about George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. I lo- You know I love George C. I Scott. And I love him and in movie. And you love him movie. in this movie, yeah. And frankly, I think Tom Berenger does a terrific job. Absolutely. But uh, Steve Norman, standing on the shoulders of Jack Benny, mm-hmm. achieves a height. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is just absolutely impressive, not because he's impersonating, because he's embodying. Yeah. And he's embodying it into what everyone keeps calling a spoof, but what I kind of feel is like a little loving tribute.
1: It is. No, it absolutely well, the best And that doesn't happen without sp- that
2: without that love that he's giving it. No,
1: the best spoofs are always wrapped up in affection, not snark.
2: Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's very well put.
0: We're all in agreement. Ah! All right. We did it. I mean, well, I let's can't give applause
1: say... to Steve Norman. Yeah, Steve he deserves Norman. it. He deserves it. Well done, Mr. Norman. Well done. Okay. So as as hard of the as the decision is for best uh, actor, it's uh, uh, it's pretty beauty for best actress. I actually think Trish Van is the only person that actually qualifies as a best lead actress, except possibly Car- Princess Miranda,
0: Polly McIntyre. I don't
1: love Trish Van in the movie, but I think she's effective. I would give it. I would give it to her.
0: I don't know. I'm going to give it to. I think my lady Polly McIntyre. I think she did a good job. She played like the '50s girl really well, and then she yeah, played right Princess Miranda really well.
1: So how about you, Roger? You know,
2: I was um, I was considering Sailor Ward. Yeah, 25. I don't know if she'd
1: qualify as best actress. but, if but you want to give I, her, but, if you want to give her best actress, go ahead.
2: But I I think I'm going to follow your lead, Quentin. Oh, okay. Playing this kind of woman in control. Uh Yeah. I think she was great. Yeah, she did. A good, she
0: is really good. In she it. did a good
1: job. She did a, yeah. I'm being a bitch. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, she's fine. She's terrific.
0: I'm sticking with Polly, though. Yeah, yeah. I, also,
2: I, I also wanted to throw out Robert Colby as the hitchhiker guy. I actually really <laughs> liked that dude. guy. <laughs> yeah, I did, too. I, I want to throw that
1: guy out that's there. The as... Roger guy. Not, not that he's like you, but that's, that's like somebody you would know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I like him, and he's like this guy. That's who, like you directed a movie you stick some guy you used to hang out with 20 years ago and playing <laughs> that part. <laughs> he is a
2: prolific TV actor. He's oh, really? in everything, <laughs> that guy.
1: Okay, so now we come to best supporting actor. And uh, I'm going with Patrick Wayne.
0: I'm going
1: That's a good choice.
0: Um CW Oh
1: CW Bailey.
0: Yes, yeah, CW Bailey. That would be my choice. Because he made me every line of his was like the good line in that script.
1: Yeah. Like <laughs> okay, I'm just I'll just get my drunk. Outfit out of the, the back. <laughs> I'll get off this stupid sidekick outfit. I got my. That's okay. I got my drunk outfit in the back.
0: <laughs> Didn't throw it away quite yet.
2: You know what? I think I'm going to go with Bailey as well. Okay, good too. What I like about Bailey is he's the character who's undergoing a kind of true transformation. Yeah, yeah. Of he's self real. He's realizing his world. I and find, he's, and he's yeah. transitioning from drunk. Yeah. To to sidekick. I. That's a noble it, journey yeah. he's on.
1: I find him terrible in the police academy movies, but he's really good in this one. I have to say, but but my hatred for him in the police academy movies dies hard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, uh, and now finally, uh, uh, best supporting actress,
0: who plays the whore in the last run. Oh, Oh, that's that's, uh,
1: Colleen Dewhurst. Yeah, Colleen Dewhurst. Colleen Dewhurst. Who who was George C. Scott's ex-wife.
0: Oh, my God. He stars his
1: his ex-wife and he stars his future wife in the same movie. No way. Wait,
2: wait, was she already his ex-wife? Yeah, she was his ex-wife. By the way, Was she already his future wife?
1: No, 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 no. They met on the movie. They got married after that. Oh, them.
2: my God. Is that awkward?
1: <laughs>
0: or is that normal
1: in the well, life of George C. Scott? Well, well I think, she, like I said, I think, I think she was his ex-wife when they did Last Run.
0: That's awesome because that, By the way,
1: I think George C. Scott is the only person who would ever cast Colleen Dewhurst as a whore.
0: <laughs> the, well, the scene between him and Colleen Dewhurst has some of my favorite dialogue in the entire Oh, it's got film. great dialogue. Oh, well- and it's, th- th-
1: the reveal about the love letter, it was yeah, you know, was one of Alan Sharp's bad I don't want to yeah. make them. Yeah. No, no, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reveal about the love letter is one of Alan Sharp's great touches but, in the dialogue in and the I movie. think they
0: have such good sentimentalism between them that I felt so emotionally connected to George C. Scott because of her performance. I agree with right you right off the bat.
1: I agree with you. You would laugh. You would laugh at the prayers of a whore? I have it, I have,
0: it was so good okay, that I go wrote this down. Okay, write it, Let uh, me find it. it. I have it word for word. You think it would be no good for a whore to pray for you. It's yeah. So good. Oh. <laughs> Do you guys agree? Who would you guys go for for best of the
1: I think that's a great case you made for Colleen Dewhurst. I think you made a great case for Colleen Dewhurst. Uh, I probably should follow both the Avery's leads, but... Um, Always, you should. I'm going to give it to Celia Ward. All right. I actually think Celia Ward is. Uh, uh, I, I don't she's care. really good in it. She's funny. Yeah. I, I, in fact, she's so funny that they drop her character in the last half hour and you miss her. Yeah. And when she has that funny joke at the end, you're like, well, where the fuck has she been for the last 20 fucking minutes?
2: Absolutely true.
1: Uh, okay. Now we come to the second hardest one. Uh, but I think I know the answer. Best director.
0: You know this one's really hard, actually, because you have Flesher, in my opinion, who does like an excellent job picking up this movie. Then you have like Roger Evans, who's like drawing on the film and like animating the thing.
2: There, it it has to be said that. To be a dir- it's
1: almost unfair to, to compare the two of you them. Can't. It's unfair to each of them, yes. all right? Not it's to not, all three. It's not like it's unfair to Roger Evans to compare it to the last run. It's unfair to compare the last run to Jack Absol- Benny. Absolutely. So,
2: having said that, there is one guy who was sitting there in his room, in his underwear, scratching frame <laughs> after frame, twenty-four
1: frame for each second <laughs> what like he Rogers, to do. Roger- <laughs> Sitting in his room, in his underwear, in his own filth, (laughs) reeking of his own stink.
0: (laughs) And not only that, but the ingenuity of this film, all of the gags, and then on top of it to allow Steve Norman to just do Steve Norman, and do Jet Benny. He gives him that freedom. Okay, I'm going with with Roger Evans. So
2: you know how much I love Flesher. He stands on his own. He doesn't need me to prop him up. He doesn't need me to give him an award. (laughs) <laughs> However, Roger Evans, the other Roger out there toiling in obscurity. That guy needs to hear this. Dude, you did it.
1: Well, as absolutely convincing as the Averys have been in this. Event, and by the way, I loved every second of it cuz I I I I couldn't agree more with the sentiment. I will stand up for Hollywood professionalism. <laughs> That is, by the
2: way, completely legit. No, I, there, there, I have, there's no that, argument that is for as, me. That
1: is as legit as everything you said and everything you guys said yeah. was legit. That's it. exactly
2: why it's unfair to compare, to compare to these two films it's is unfair. because both arguments cancel the other out. <laughs> they <do. Yeah. laughs>
1: They're uh, equal uh,
2: but opposite. They neutralize each other. I will give best editing uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Russell Lloyd Yeah. Um, in, of The Last Run.
1: I, w- I would give best editing to The Last Run as well. How about you, Gallup?
0: Yeah. Also, by the way, that scene that you mentioned about the editing with the car. Yeah. I actually gasped out loud when I saw it. Yeah. I went, oh! I was so, I actually covered my eyes uh-huh. because it was so visceral and you then feel I went it. back and I watched it yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, was,
1: Roger Manley, we got to go back. We got to go back and watch how they did that. Yeah. And I was almost like, oh, I don't want to even ruin it, but then it was even better because you could see how they did it. Yeah. All right, you could see how specific it was.
0: I got one for you, Quentin, and Roger. Best box of the night. Ooh,
1: uh, I actually really love the Last Run, both box and the album cover and the poster. Uh, it's so iconic. I also love the Jet Benny one. Uh,
2: uh, I'm gonna go with Wrestler's Rhapsody personally.
1: Okay, uh, you know, here's the thing. I probably would pick the Last Run box if it wasn't this cut up version
0: of it. <laughs> if it were, if it a, wasn't a bootleg. It, yeah, yeah. If
1: it, if, if it were a normal MGM box this would be the winner. But yeah. since it's a Xerox and it's like a little off and the end is cut off and you don't see his whole hand here. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I would agree with that. I would go with Wrestler's Rhapsody well, The well. thing
2: about Russell's Rhapsody is it, yeah. it has a beautiful popping look to it you've got tom berenger
1: but i also like the fact that it's not like ridiculous hey let's make it let's show you that this is a silly movie and have like a bunch of silly comedy shit in here no this looks like legit and what's weird
2: is there's plenty of space on the top and on the bottom to put taglines and other things yeah and, and they leave them blank
1: it's nice and clean but you do see him standing up in the saddle yeah, uh you know nice uh, yeah cinematography uh well let me go with screenplay next. Okay. So best mm. screenplay, well, to me that's yeah, Alan that's Sharp.
2: Yeah, that's Alan Sharp. And,
1: and we're talking about, we're talking about two good screenplays as well. And especially WrestleMania's Rhapsody is really good, but, but, but Alan Sharp,
2: all yeah. The way. I mean it, it it's close, but it, it goes to Alan Sharp. Yeah.
1: And when it comes to cinematography, I think it it's Sven- Nick Fitz. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But pretty much I would say every other technical award goes to Jet <laughs> 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 Just for the fact that they exist.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the existence <laughs> award. <laughs>
1: Best film? that oh, well, Last Run.
0: Yeah, for as much as I love the Jet Benny show and the laughter it brought me, I know the the last run is going to be what I return to, yeah, yeah. to watch again. I even give it a little heart in my notebook to remind me to like it online.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would say best film also goes to Last Run. Last Run is, uh, I mean, it's a it's a magnificent big movie that seems to have fallen through the cracks a little bit. As much as Steve Norman Mm -hmm. is the reason for Jet Benny to exist and that Tom Berenger is in many ways how wrestlers Rhapsody can even exist because Mm -hmm. he's, he is that he has to pull it off. Yeah. yeah. He's got to pull that off. There is no last run without George C. Scott.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. No, right. Well, actually, Ron that could, Stiger, no, Ron Stiger. Stiger. you actually you actually talked yourself out of the fucking point because a lot of it'd be like Charles Bronson could have played Ron this Stiger. character. I can see in 1971 James Coburn playing this role, and I can see in 1971, especially talking about 1971, I can see uh, um, uh, Charles Bronson playing the role. And no, they don't have those things you're talking about. But I wouldn't be asking for that if they were playing it because I would be enjoying them. It'd be a different but, movie, yeah. but. But your point is that there is a poignant resonance that George C. Scott brings to the performance that might probably would not be there as embedded in the in the character uh, for Bronson and Coburn. He wants to make this statement. Yeah. Just like the character wants to make a statement. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to do it well. I just, I just want to do it well. <laughs> yeah.
0: Video archives podcast hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Kala Avery. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Moala. Find out more about the show by heading to VideoArchivesPodcast.com Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's Project Avery dot org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts.